Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 124. So glad you could join me. Happy holidays to everybody out there this day after Christmas. Hope you had a good one, um, however you celebrate. Now, as always, uh, Rattle's publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do make sure you click the like button and share and all that good stuff to make sure poetry spreads around the internet. Uh, Today's guest is Jose A. Alcantara, and he'll be with us in about 15 minutes. But before we begin, um, it's always nice to go to the uh, poet of the day. And today's poem is Breaking Point by Emily Pickering. Let's call up Emily. Hello. Hey, Emily, this is Tim, and you are live on the air with Rattle. How are you doing today? I'm doing very good, Tim. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, too. Um, so so the poem that you wrote for this week, um, Breaking Point, is about the holidays and, and the coronavirus. Uh, some weeks, um, I, you know, I pick a poem you know, that's a strange story or interesting, something that nobody's writing about. But this was a kind of poem that um, a lot of submissions were sort of, it felt like trying to capture um, just this yeah. feeling of um, the holidays with, with this still going on. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about what inspired the poem and, and how it came to be written? Yes, I would love to. So I had told myself I was done writing COVID poems because I think a lot of poets have just written so much about this. Um but I, I agree with you, we were saying capturing this feeling because I noticed just such an awareness and a juxtaposition between celebrating the holidays and identifying how cautious should we be? How much is appropriate to complain when I know all my family members are thankfully in good shape? And so writing this poem, I was again trying to pinpoint that exact feeling of our second COVID Christmas when many people are able to be vaccinated, but at the same time we have this new variant and to what extent should that affect us and to what extent can we still gather to celebrate while also being definitely frustrated with the way things are going right now? Yeah. And, and what stands out in the poem are the, the various images that you, you put together, but with the tree falling over and, and then the, the, the Santa that you see, um, did all that stuff actually happen? And, and how did, like, when did you start writing the poem and what was like the impetus for it? Yeah, so our tree actually did fall over one day, and that Mm -hmm. struck me as so appropriate for the mood that I think we've all been in, just kind of just giving out. Um, And I have to say, it was really strange to come home and just see your Christmas tree laying on the ground. That's not something that we really expect to see. And so there wasn't really much we could do other than move on and try and, and take care of it the best we could, which I think is representative of how everyone's feeling this holiday season. And the mask Santa Claus, I, I did see that in the mall. And I remember that was just so striking to me because that's not what you expect to see, especially since I know my sister, who's very young, was looking forward to sitting on Santa's lap, telling him about the gifts she wanted to get. And so the fact that she you know, had to be spaced away from him, they were both wearing masks, that was just sort of eerie and a really powerful picture of all these memories being altered by COVID and the way so many events have already had to adapt. Um, so I was just trying to think of a collection of images that I've been seeing um, over this whole month, really, but especially in the last week, and trying to put them together and identify all of these feelings that I think connect all of them, the tree um, and the Santa Claus, and just the conversations that I've had with family and friends or looking at Christmas cards, which usually say what types of things are going on in people's lives. But this year, it felt more of, you know, we're very thankful. This is what we're thankful for, which was a nice aspect of it when compared with the more eerie images of seeing the Santa Claus and seeing the tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to sort of keep things normal and together when it's been, it's the second Christmas in a row, um, yes. you know, of this kind of, 
this kind of world we're living in. Um, well, do you want to go ahead and read the poem? Yes, I would love to. So this is Breaking Point. Our tree fell yesterday when no one was home. It just took one last breath and keeled down, pine shuddering and glass baubles dropping with the hollow sigh of defeat. I was out shopping with my sister, and we passed the masked Santa Claus in the mall. Children banished to a forlorn chair adjacent to the lap they longed to sit on. At first, it was easy to describe how disease infiltrates a body, creeps below the radar like a wild dog tracing fence lines. Even then, we spoke only about our strength, because grief on an unfamiliar person bears teeth like a scarlet letter. I remembered when we were all butterflies, a brush of knuckles could rip wings. Too fragile to embrace alive. Now, we are all fountains buried in heaps of coins, people tossing fists of flashy wishes at each other with a concerted jonesing for relief. How gently our heed slips out of our hands, how gently a girl's vigilance can be worn down to the bone. The two-dimensional faces of distant relatives and college friends grace our Christmas cards. Typical reunions canceled where we assess the proper amount of fear, using an eyedropper to parse out the quota of griping over these particular griefs. We will later give way to a collective desquamation, unveiling former emotional recessions. I could swear even the summer sunflowers open late. Yes, our tree fell yesterday and we swept the fallen ornaments into the trash, aren't they all replaceable at the end of the day, and brushed out the branches until they unfurled from a fist to an open palm. Yeah, thanks so much for that. It was breaking point. There's so many great lines in that poem. How gently our heed slips out of our hands is one of them that, that sort of stuck with me. And um, and I learned a word, too, desquamation. <laughs> um, it's a very medical word, and I remember thinking, ooh, I don't know if this is appropriate to put in the poem, but then I thought with all of all of the doctor's appointments that I'm sure we've all been going to and all of the testing and stuff, it really felt appropriate to, short, to sort of illustrate that unveiling that we're all all doing right now. So, yeah, yeah, well, I well heard it's that perfect. Yeah. yeah, we kind of have a rule of thumb. If there's one new word, then that's a learning experience. If there's two, it's too much. <laughs> so that's no, perfect. That's exactly. <laughs> Completely agree. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks so much for joining us, Emily. It's great talking to you, and, and thanks for sharing this poem, which uh, you can already see is resonating with a lot of people today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, my Thank pleasure. You. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. It was Emily Pickering with today's poem, Breaking Point. And uh, now we're going to go, let's look at a... About five minutes till we're going to join um, Jose. So let's um, let's look at some other poems from the past. And uh, you know, this is a week where we tend to do sort of year-end reviews and that, that kind of thing. And um, and let's look at some poems. For a while, we were publishing um, Doggerel, and um, we had a little bit of a Doggerel contest. Because nobody uh, nobody wants the Christmas poem, <laughs> frankly, um, as a daily poem, because that's the, the the least traffic day of the year um, at Rattle dot com, and so we had a um, a, a dog roll contest for a while, which I kind of forgot about, honestly. But let's let's play one of these: the, the night before Christmas, two thousand fourteen, political dog roll version by Russell Cover. Let's play this. The night before Christmas. 2014. Political version. T'was the night before Christmas, and all through the house not a creature was stirring. Nothing new about that. Nominations and bills were hung up in committee with no hope, for ideologues show no pity. New senators, too, were home tucked up in bed, dreaming of wall maps in all shades of red. And voters who slept through the midterm election were wrapped in thin blankets of sad disaffection. While out in the world there continued such clatter, it was hard to decide where to look for the matter. 
Ebola, Crimea, Boko Haram, Gaza's on fire, three seventies gone. ISIS brutality boggles the mind, while CIA torture has tarnished our shine. The Arctic is darkening. Amplification enlarges the specter of Earth's degradation. Ferguson streets are lit up with contention, for race is a subject we've found hard to mention. Yet on the ellipse in the dark of the night, kid-programmed Christmas trees sparkled with light. And what to our wondering eyes did appear but the POTUS equipped with executive gear? Standing alone as the head of the nation, he took one bold step to repair immigration. With a swish of his pen, he opened up Cuba and then disappeared to the land of the Hula. But I heard him exclaim as he left for his fun, Merry Christmas to all. Now let's get something done. Again, that was Russell Cover with uh, her poem from December 5th, 2014. So that's seven years ago, and doesn't it feel like a different world? Um, and this was in response to the, um, the White House holiday poem, Basement Version, which was uh, going around the Internet. Um, what was that? Let me, let me, I vaguely remember that. Let me see what this was. This was, um, oops, I guess I can't see it. You have to sign in. I mean, this was a, it was a holiday poem that the White House put out. It, it feels like a different world in 2014 with um, Obama in the White House and, uh, and, and the problems, um, not quite, you know, pandemic level. So, um, so that was the night before Christmas, 2014. And let's look at one more poem. This is a, a poem from 2000, what's this one? This was 2015, the next year. Um, and this was December 27th. This is more of a New Year's poem, because New Year's Eve is, of course, coming up as well. And here's a toast from Wendy Vidalock, which I'll read myself because there's no audio. A toast. Here's to the mountain. Here's to the sky. Here's to the who and the what and the why. Here's to the leisure. Here's to the chore. Here's to the pit and the skin and the core. Here's to the ancient. Here's to the now. Here's to the numb and the seed and the plow. Here's to the fire. Here's to the shore. Here's to the star and the freak and the boar. Here's to the attic, here's to the saint, here's to the song and the hum of complaint, here's to the minor, here's to the crone, here's to the ruined, the stayed and the flown, here's to the wrist, here's to the tongue, here's to the rib and the cage and the bone. That is Wendy Wendy Vidalock, uh, who's on Rattlecast number, I'm going to say like 50 or so, um, and then she says, immersed as we are in the season of gratitude, spirits, and imbibing, it seemed only fitting to write a toast. And so that was, that was Wendy's toast from 2015. And yet another time that feels like a different era, doesn't it? So um, now let's gonna go to take a quick break. We're going to join um, our today's guest, which is um, Jose A. Alcantara. And we'll be right back. And we're back. Thanks for waiting. As I mentioned, Jose A. Alcantara is our guest today. He lives in western Colorado, um, although he joins us from um, Arizona right now. He's worked as a bookseller, mailman, commercial fisherman, banker, carpenter, studio photographer, door-to-door salesman, and math teacher. His poems have appeared in Poetry Daily, The Southern Review, Beloit Poetry Journal, Spillway, Rattle, Rhino, etc. Um, he's been in the anthology 99 Poems for the 99%. In America, We Call Your Name, Poems of Resistance and Resilience. His first book, The Bitten World, is just out from Teapot Bach. And uh, here he is now, 
Jose A. Alcantara. Hey, Jose, how are you doing today? Doing well, Tim. It's good to see you. Thanks for uh, thanks for hosting this and all the other stuff you do for poetry, <laughs> which seems limitless. But yeah, well, it's always my pleasure. I mean, th- these these broadcasts are just my favorite thing of all the things that we do. I love that I finally get to meet the poets that that I've um, been appreciating their work for so long, and and you're one of them. Like you're one of those sort of I don't know, like mystery poets, where I wonder. Um, you know, like why it took so long to get a first book out. And because you have so many great poems and, and are so sort of beloved in the, among the poetry community. So um, it's, it's great to finally get to see you. And, um, and, and I'm so glad that you got this book out, which we, I know we've been waiting for for a long time. Yes, it has been a long time. I think most of the poems are at least, you know, four to five years old. I submitted it four years ago, but the pandemic came and made everything weird. But it's, it's kind of out now. It's still, if you go look at small press distribution, it says it's not quite available yet. Like the printer still has it, but it's it's on there and it's it's almost ready to go. Hey, so Wendy is, you know, one of my little crone, you know, cronies. Did you do that on purpose? Um, you know, I kind of, as I was flipping through, I thought, oh, there's a Colorado poet. Yeah, <laughs> let's do that. All right, figured. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so do you want to start us out with a poem? What do you want to read first? Uh, yeah, I think I'll um, read the opening poem in the book, actually. Okay. Uh, So page one, a note to Fernando uh, Pessoa. We must not be afraid to buy the bananas in the street, the yellow bananas with the black splotches, the bananas hawked by sellers with unseemly yet beautiful voices, the bananas that have captured the entire morning's sun in their electric skins. We must buy the bananas even if we buy them incorrectly even if the eyes of the seller do not meet our eyes in the way we think they should, even if the price is not quite right or the scales read a little high, still we must buy the bananas, for what else is there? And if we fail to buy them correctly, if our voice breaks when we ask the price, if we change our minds, picking first this bunch, then that one, then let us fail perfectly with bananas in our hands, yellow bananas with black splotches, and the sun swinging at the ends of our arms as we walk. And that was, uh, um, what was that, the poem called? It was uh, oh, A Note to Fen- Fernando so, Pessoa from uh, yeah. The Bitten World. And uh, so, so can you talk a little bit about what the, um, why you chose this for the title? And then I have the cover on the screen. There's this image of, um, if, anybody, if the, the, the glare goes away, there it goes. So this is a, um, it looks like some kind of sea sea um plant type thing with maybe an oyster clinging yeah, to it is that what that is i don't know if it's an oyster it's some kind of barnacly thing but but who knows but um so there's a quote that uh, opens the book you know after the table of contents and it's from ralph waldo emerson and it says the quote is the bitten world holds the biter fast by his own teeth so i i think uh recently i read something i can't remember the author or the poet who said it but she said she and it might even been on a rattlecast i'm not sure but she's tried to quit poetry several times and has been unable to do it and uh, so it's kind of like that and so the picture is actually taken by my friend ellie and it was in maine and uh it's sort of captured that it's like um you know when you when something beautiful happens to you or you experience something, you know, and your attention is just grabbed onto it, you know, it's, it's also grabbing you at the same time. And so I thought this picture just perfectly fit that because it's, you know, the, that plant looks like it's devouring that 
muscle or whatever it is, you know, but it's not, but both things are kind of just now stuck together permanently. And so it's just kind of feel that way. Poetry has taken hold of me. I try and take hold of it. And so that's kind of where it's coming from. Yeah, and it feels like um, we talked about, I think maybe it was just last week, or maybe it was with David Kirby a couple of weeks ago, but we talked about um, how po- poems tend to have themes. Um, you know, the book, like manuscripts, probably because of the publishing world and how that operates and, and how contests sort of dominated everything. Um, but this book is more feels like the... Like, um, um, like like the theme is just noticing the world and paying attention to to the world around you and and it's it's sort of less of a theme than most books have I would say it's sort of a journey through like your experiences and the things that you have noticed um, was that was that something that you were thinking about as you put the book together or that's just how it came to be well I, I kind of did struggle with the idea of thinking that I had to have a theme and didn't have one you know and so you know normally you open a poetry book and it's not only is it theme but it's broken up into sections and each section co- coheres around something that's that isn't for me you know for me I was talking to my uh, father-in-law just yesterday and he was asking me so what do you write about what are your themes and um, I don't have a particular theme but I think there are three and one is nature I do most of my writing outside like 95% of it so it's just what I'm seeing out in the world um it's uh there's some poems that I write what people would call political maybe social justice it's like you know trying to ask for a better world or a kinder world and then the other one is um I guess what I use I use the word god although I'm an agnostic and I don't actually believe in the Christian God per se, but, but that mystery, you know, what is it that's, that's bigger than humans that, um, we see kind of operating in the world, but we really can't wrap our minds around it. So those are kind of my themes. And so, yeah, it's just, how am I interacting with those three things? That's what the book is. Yeah. Well, I usually don't, um, you know, have requests, but there is one poem, I think the first rule of poetry, which is on page 36. Um, a little cameo. Um, yeah, okay. so the, <laughs> yeah, the first rule of poetry is on page thirty-six, and that feels um, like like it sort of captures what you're do you're trying to do with with poems and with this book. So I thought maybe that'd be a good poem to share early on, if you don't mind. No, it's fine. Yeah, it was one I was thinking of uh, of reading anyway. So thanks. Yeah, the first rule of poetry: you have been given a gift, a curse, a knife under the ribs. You have been given a word, a vision, the toll of a distant bell. You have been given the overhead, the overheard conversation, the fox sleeping atop a bale of hay, the suicide in the alley. You have been given the dewdrops pendulant on the tip of every burning blade of grass. You have been given the rape, the incinerated village, the little girl in pink shoes skipping as she sings. You have been given the hummingbird flying against the glass, the shadow of a leaf on the wood of the boardwalk, the hungry raven's cry. You have been struck with the cold cudgel of grace. Now get out of the way. And that was the first rule of poetry, again, from the bitten world. Um, and so, I'm going to so close that. Your, oh, yeah, no problem. <laughs> All right, I'm back. Okay. So, um, yeah, so, what was I going to say? Yeah, so, so the bitten world, um, it, it feels like, when you look at the at the back of your bio here, I'll put that on screen too. Um, 
where you've worked as a bookseller, mailman, commercial fisherman, electrician, baker, carpenter. I think there's even a bigger list that I had when I read the bio. Um, here, a studio photographer, door-to-door salesman, and math teacher. And and there's so much nature and sort of exploring. It, it feels like like um, like you're a roamer. Like you're you know, is there like an unsettledness? Like what draws you to so many different different paths through life? And and how does poetry tie into that? Because it seems like it must. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty complicated question. <laughs> I, t- I don't know how far back to go, but um, I'll say that, uh, you know, to be open to poetry requires, for me anyway, it, other people do it differently, but requires a stillness. You know, it requires uh, uh, just that space to be present, to be overtaken by something, to be able to give your attention to it. And so the mo- the thing I've done most is be a math teacher. And it's some, in some ways it's, you know, the best job and some ways it's the worst, but it takes so much of your emotional presence and your time, both, you know, during the day, of course, and then after school, you're always planning and grading for the next day. And on the weekends, you're always working. So there, and there's just no emotional energy left for poetry. So, so what I've done is I've, you know, often I've taught for a couple of years and then I quit and I go do something that's you know, kind of mindless. It's just physical labor because that leaves my mind free. And, and, you know, when I leave the job, the job is done and I don't take it home with me. So, you know, I can be open to what things come and, you know, I'm a morning writer mostly. And I, I feel like when you, after you go to sleep, you know, things, sometimes you get, you know, dreams and visions, but it just clears things out, you know, so you start the day with this kind of a blank slate and it's, it's just easier to be open. And so, yeah, I've done a lot of that, but, you know, you can't, I'm I'm not someone who's going to make a, a career out of being a baker or being an electrician. But for a while, you know, it keeps me in physical shape, but it just lets my mind free. And so I can be open. That's that's the shorter. There's a maybe a deeper reason, but I don't want to talk about that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so do you um, do you write poetry daily in the morning? You, you mentioned writing in the morning. Is that like a, a sort of an, almost a religious practice or something? If is that a spiritual thing that you do regularly? I wouldn't say it's a religious practice in that I tend to be not as disciplined as a lot of other people. It's just, you know, I wake up if I can, you know, if I'm in that situation where, you know, I wake up and that's, I just want to go and walk and be outside. So I recently spent, you know, several weeks camped on a beach in Texas and it was really good for my writing because I, you know, first off I'm next to the ocean, which is as close, I think, as we get to the infinite. And there's just, there were no distractions. There were hardly any people there. So I I wake up before sunrise and I would, you know, just walk the beach because it's what I wanted to do and, and just try to be open for anything I see. So, I mean, I, it's just what I prefer to do. I don't, I'm, I don't think like, Hey, I've got to get up and I've got to put my time in, you know, I think I might be a more prolific or better poet if I sometimes would be more deliberate in my practice. But, uh, but so far, you know, that works for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let's hear another poem. What do you want to read next? Okay, let's see. I think I want to read um, Relentless Misery, since it's the day after Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, it's weird, I have all this listed up there. What, what page are you seeing it on your list there? Um, Relentless Misery. I think it's uh, I think it's 53, maybe. Let's see. Okay. Yeah, 53. Okay. Gotcha. Relentless Misery are the words in the shape of a cross tattooed on the man's back. Relentless following letter by letter the hidden bones of his spine. Misery, the cross piece hung between his shoulder blades. The man is muscular, but soft, as if he was once something he is not now. 
and he is laughing as he moves his belongings and those of a friend into a shared locker too small for the purpose. And when the locker doesn't lock, when the quarters fall right through and the two must begin again with the next locker over, the man does not curse, does not, does not smash his fist into the shiny metal, but merely laughs louder along with his friend who is skinny without tattoos and who turns his head toward me, beaming a beautiful smile from a face ravaged by scars. That was Relentless Misery from the Bitten World. Um, to, to continue on the, the, the topic of, um, of careers and, and how jobs affect your poetry, um, it, it, what you said is what strikes me. Um, you know, I think working as a poetry editor might be one of the worst jobs for being a writer. I mean, you're just filled with all these words that aren't yours and not experiencing life except through other people's eyes, kind of. Um, so, so what jobs do you think are, are like, have served you the most um, as a writer? Like, I remember when I was um, working landscaping um, just one summer, maybe it was two summers, um, I just felt like just doing that manual labor and then also, you know, being in the real world at the same time was such a great, like, way to, to be practicing poetry as something sort of deeper and more spiritual or something, just because your, your mind is free and and you're also doing something. You're moving. You're staying alive in a in an interesting way. So so I don't know how how has different different careers served that purpose, and and are they all? You know, is the variety helpful too? Yeah. Um, first, the question you had earlier about why am I? You know, I'm 59 now. Why am I just coming out with a book now? <laughs> well, I I wasn't into poetry. I started about 10 years ago. I was always a Seth. Uh, sorry, a science and math kind of guy. Oh yeah. And. Uh, but, um, and you know, so that's why I was a math teacher, but I, you know, I came to it about 10 years ago. So even those, I was doing those kinds of jobs even before I was a poet. So it's kind of always been in me, but I didn't really know that was sort of my calling until about 10 years ago. So in terms of actual jobs, I think novelty is a good thing. You know, it's like, um, this, this time I just spent in Texas on the beach, you know, that was all new to me. I'm not a, not an ocean person. You know, I live in Colorado, we're landlocked and, and all I grew up going to the New Jersey shore a little bit, you know, I was never a beach person. So, but and I don't think it even matters really what the job is. It's just the fact that your mind is still free while you're working. And, uh, so things can come to you, you know, so just recently before I was in Texas, I was working as an electrician and to be honest, as an electrician's apprentice, because technically <laughs> you'd have to have a license and take these classes. So, but you know, and so there's newness going on. There's new parts of your brain that you're using. You've never used before. You're meeting people who are in the world in a really different way than you are. Like on a construction crew, you know, it's not the PC environment that I'm usually surrounding myself with, but, but you learn that these guys who would probably fail any test I would give in my high school math class know a lot of stuff in other ways. And, and you come away feeling like, it's it's good to be an amateur. There's someone who wrote a book about that recently about oh, the yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah about the benefit of being an amateur at something because you're like a you're like a kid, you know, when you're exposed to some new situation, new job, new experience and you've got that beginner's mind where everything is interesting and exciting and your growth curve is, you know, really rapid and so uh, so the changing it up I think is good and then really just having the uh, the freedom. But I think if I, I wasn't a poet at the time, but I think probably the best job that I could have had, uh, that I had it, but I wasn't a poet, was working on the fishing boats in Alaska. Because first, I mean, Alaska, 
<laughs> you're on a boat, you know, you're at the ocean. It's just all this amazing stuff. But there's also, and, and so sometimes you're working really intensely. You know, when the salmon are running, they're running and there's no time to, you know, just days are 18 hours long or whatever. But, but then there's a lot of downtime where you can just sit around and you have that time for reflection. And, and that is an essential part of it as well. Yeah, that reminds me. We got to have Peter Monroe on, who's that um, marine biologist for the, uh, you know, on those boats writing every time. He'd be a good person to talk to in the in the in the winter right now. <laughs> anyway, um, so so you mentioned that that it was only ten years ago that you sort of turned to poetry as your calling, which you called it. Um, uh, how did that happen? Like, well, how did you discover poetry as something that was important to you? Well, uh, so I was, I was living in this town, Carbondale, Colorado. I, I kind of still sort of, I mean, it's the closest thing I have to a home right now is Carbondale. Um, and there's, it's a real, it's an interesting place. It's, it's um, down valley from Aspen, about 30 miles maybe. Um, but it's historically, it was a land that was um, occupied by the Ute Native Americans. And then I don't actually know the exact order of all these things, but there's, uh, you know, a mining influx and a ranching influx. And now there's more like a, you know, people, there's like a mountain bike ski influx. So the, the populations were continually changing. And I was, uh, and then, the, you know, there's a lot of Latinos have moved in from Mexico and El Salvador and, and Honduras, and which is where my father's from, Honduras. Um, and recently uh, something had happened in the town in uh, back then about 10 years ago where um, I think it was a middle school teacher was assaulted by like I think three Latina girls just walking in through town and I, I don't really know the whole story about it but because of that thing there was all of a sudden these letters to the editor that and, and there was a feeling in the community not everybody obviously but there's a feeling in the community of you know this message of go home you know you're the ruin the neighborhood is being ruined now because these Latinos are moving in and so one morning I, I was up, there's a little graveyard above town and uh, in this beautiful meadow with this view of this huge, you know, awe-inspiring mountain. And I'm reading the Divine Comedy and I, I, don't, I don't even remember, I think it's in the, uh, the uh, Paradiso. And um, Dante the Pilgrim, his, his uncle, is talking about Florence in the 1300s and he's making the exact same argument mm. that the neighborhood is being ruined by all the new people moving into Florence. And it just, so I hadn't really written poetry before, but I'm sitting there and in this graveyard, it's like the sun just came up over the ridge. The frost is melting. It's dripping on the tombstones. It's being lit back by the sun. All of a sudden the Catholic church bells ring and something like happened in my mind. It was just this weird juxtaposition of all these things. This raven flies overhead. The tombstone I'm sitting at is last. There's two right there. One is this uh, is a Latina name who was like buried there in the 50s, way before any of this stuff. And the one next to it is Anderson, and I have relatives who are Anderson. It's just all this weird coincidence stuff. And um, and so I just got out my pen and I wrote a poem about that that idea that um, there's always this new change coming in, and the new people coming in are always the bad people, you know, <laughs> and we're always the good people. And above it all sits this mountain, Mount Sopris, that has been there and will be there. It was there long before any of us, it'll be there long after. And it's just, it operates on a different time scale, you know, and something about all that stuff, you know, it just crystallized something. And so I wrote this long poem with you know, rhymes and all kinds of stuff. And I sent it to a letter, I sent it as a letter to the editor for the local paper 
And um, there was this guy named Cam Scott, who's been a mentor and friend for ever since, who was a poet out in Oregon. And he's written a couple of books, but uh, he saw it. He read it in the paper and then contacted the paper and said, who is this guy who's, you know, writing these poems? Because I, I, then I wrote another one later or something. And so he um, he contacted me and we sort of started a little writing group together. And so he's the one that really said to me, hey, you really are a poet, you know, <laughs> and, and it's okay, you know, it's, 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 we forgive you and go forward. And so that's, and I've been doing it since then. Yeah, that's a great story, because it feels like, um, you know, you know, people, everybody has these sort of rich, important experiences where you're struck by sort of the significance of your place in the world and strange things that happen. And then, and then poets write them down and save them, which is sort of the difference between, <laughs> between people yeah. who are poets or not. So it's really cool to hear your story, um, you know, the, how it came to be in that such a spontaneous way. Had you read much poetry up until that point? Was that something that you read but didn't write? Yeah, no. No, and I don't, like, even the time at reading Divine Comedy, I don't think of that. Even now, I don't really think of it as poetry, although it really is. But no, I hadn't, I didn't, you know, I would have read Walt Whitman, and only because when I was in Alaska, a good friend of mine, Andy Burgess, you know, carried around a copy of Leaves of Grass with him. And uh, and although I, I don't know that he ever became a, we lost touch, if he became a poet who wrote, but he had that same wandering sort of hunger for the mystery and uh so i had read walt whitman and you know the things that you hear growing up like robert frost or whatever but no i had never sought out poetry to read and now it's like for a while it's all i wanted to read and i couldn't once i discovered poetry i couldn't read novels because it just seemed like oh my god shut up already you know there are just <laughs> so many words it's like let me think my own thoughts but i've gotten a little bit past that now and i've been enjoying some novels uh, again which is feels more balanced but <laughs> yeah i have the same experience um, so if anybody has any questions um, for jose please do leave them in the chat windows either on facebook or youtube and i'll pass them along but let's do another poem yeah. Hey, uh, so let's see. Um, I have to, I've made a list, but when I'm looking at you, I can't see my list of poems that I wanted to read. So let's, uh, let's go with one that Rattle published. In fact, the only one you've published six of my poems now, but the only one that made it into this book, because this book is, you know, I submitted the manuscript so long ago was, uh, by Lacey. So that's on page 24. And normally I wouldn't like to give a background on a poem, but, um, but this poem was written as part of your poets respond. So if someone was hearing it for when it was written, experiencing it, they would have had this background anyway. Um, so I wrote it. It was a day or two after the Manchester bombing that was uh, in a Manchester arena in England. I think it was 2018, maybe the Ariana Grande concert. And I happened to be walking uh, in uh, the Maroon Bells, which I don't know if you're familiar with it, but when you think of iconic images of Colorado, the Maroon Bells is probably the number one place that you see. And it's, the, there's this lake and then these kind of reddish mountains and often they have snow or maybe it's a fall shot. So I'm walking in this ungodly beautiful place and it's kind of late spring. So there's still a little bit of snow around on the ground. And, and I didn't intentionally try and write a poem in response to the Manchester bombing. It's just, that's the space I was in when I saw this little, these flowers growing in the ground. So, so the poem is called Violaceae, and that's the Latin name for the uh, family of, uh, that includes all the violets. So Violaceae. If we must have violence, then let it be the violence of violets, how they burst into spring before most anything else, vanguard of the voluptuous, unraveling their petals, their leaves, to attract whatever will love them. If we must rant and rave, then let us do so as they do, inconspicuously, close to the ground, 
in all the wet places, until something with a stinger comes and mounts us, turning us inward, where we learn what it is to sweeten. Yeah, and that is um, violacier. How do you say that? Viol- well, I think I have my degree is in forestry, so I I think I know how to pronounce it, but it's been a while. <laughs> it's uh, violacier. <laughs> Yeah, and that is from uh, The Bitten World, of course, and from Rattles Poets Respond. And here's a photo of, um, it was slow to pull it up, but here are those um, um, uh, maroon bells that that we were talking about before, that beautiful area of Colorado, those mountains in that valley. Um, So, And and Tim, Tim, I just want to, I like, I know there's probably, it's probably mostly poets who tune into this thing. So for me, when I wrote this poem, what was driving was just, the only thing that drove it was the fact that the word violet and violence sound almost indistinguishable to me. Yeah. And, and, but yet they're so opposite experiences in the world. And so if you notice that first stanza, what's driving it is I just tried to put as many V's in there as possible. It's just the sound of the V sound, you know, and then the second stanza that disappears. But, um, and it's interesting to me how, you know, for the poets out there, how poems come to you in different ways and what drives them. You know, sometimes it's an actual an idea that you're trying to get across and it's more of a didactic thing. And sometimes it's just a visual experience that you have. And but that one was a was an oral experience of just the sound of violence and violence. And it's I think it's a poem will also often work better for me, at least if there is something driving it. that's not about, oh, this is how I feel about something and I want to tell you what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you ever, I, I, I think I remember looking this up, but I don't remember what I found. It, it, does the word violet and violence etym, etymologically have anything to do with each other? Do you remember? No, I don't. And I don't remember ever looking for it. That's kind of <laughs> lame of me, but but I'm going to after this. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, maybe as you talk, I'll look it up really quick again. But um, yeah. but but so, so talk a little bit about your process, about how poems come to be. Because you mentioned having, you know, you just, just now mentioned having not, not be something you want to express, but some other angle to sort of enter into what you're talking about. So, so there we know the, how the poem came to be. But in general, like how do, do poems operate? Like where do they, where do they come from? And, and once you have something that you want to write about or you start writing, do you know what you're writing about before you start? Or are you like searching for what the, the actual topic is? How does that process go as you're starting a poem? Well, I, I tend to be, I guess, what maybe other people would call passive. And I, I already described, like, I write in the morning, I write outside, and um, usually I'm just looking for something that is interesting. That's, you know, kind of basically it. And so recently when I was just down in Texas, I um, it's a poem I don't have prepared to share, but it's called Jellyfish by Moonlight. And I was walking on the beach at, like, I don't know, 3, 4 in the morning, and um, all these jellyfish are washed up on the shore like they often are, but during the daytime you can't see them because they're translucent. So it's not till you get right on top of one will you actually see the jellyfish because it's, you know, basically you're just looking through them at the sand. But at 3, 4 in the morning and the moon was at this perfect angle and the shore was at the perfect angle and the light was bouncing off the jellyfish, you know, the light that's bouncing off the moon. And so they were all lit up. And, you know, that's kind of those one of those magical moments that you hope you're just going to see. And so I just started writing jellyfish by moonlight. That's, that's all I had. I had no intention. I, you know, there was, this wasn't going to go anywhere. I had no, you know, thing I wanted to do, but it was just trying to, to honor that moment. So, so that's mostly what it is. I do have some poems though that are, and actually I'll read one later, but where I definitely have a much more, there's much more of a, of a mission maybe, or that a purpose that I want. But, and then the other part of my process is, so I, I write everything by hand or, or, or 99% by hand in the little journals that I carry around. 
And then I, when I come back inside, I'll sit down at my computer and I'll type them up. And often the form of the poem won't happen until then. Like when I'm writing in my journal, I'm just, I don't care about stanzas or line breaks or, or you know, for most part. And then when I'm putting them on the computer, that's when it might make sense to, that it's a prose poem or it's one stanza or it goes into couplets or triplets or whatever, who knows. But then I send them out uh, to, I have a few friends, uh, Matt Daly, who's probably the, my biggest, the one who I've been sending out poems most and the longest. He's a poet in Wyoming, and so you should check his artwork. It's D-A-L-Y, Matt Daly. <laughs> so we exchange a lot, and uh, and I'm going to read some poems that would not exist if I didn't have that connection with Matt Daly. And then uh, so and then I have this new poet uh, friend, uh, Earl Hines. He goes by A. He Hines, a great poet. Uh, but we've just you know met within the past year, although we've never physically met. <laughs> uh, there's a poet in uh, Hawaii named Eric Paul Schaefer and, and Camp Scott. And so there's these you know, several people who I just, we send our first drafts back and forth. And, and sometimes we critique each other and we give suggestions. And, but for Matt and I, more often the benefit comes when we don't critique each other, but we just write a poem that was inspired. Mm -hmm. And that's all. There's no, there's no, hey, how you doing sometimes? It's just, you know, I send him a poem with nothing but the poem. And then he sends a poem back that's inspired. And then maybe, you know, I send another one triggered on his. And that's a, that's a big part of my process. And, uh, and it's it's a really important thing, not just for the poems, but, you know, often as a, you know, writing poetry is a very can be a very lonely business, you know, and often it doesn't feel lonely. It's just solitude and you're off by yourself. But it's really nice to have a community of other people who are doing kind of the same thing with you as you and feel like you're there together and you're sharing things. Um, you know, when you're camping on the beach in Texas by yourself for two weeks, it's nice to go to be able to go to a coffee shop and reach out to a friend and say, you know, here's what I've got. What do you have? Yeah, that's yeah, really interesting to hear that too. I'm um, just to circle back on that that question about etymology. Violent does come from uh, violet in Middle English. The word was also applied in reference to heat, sunlight, smoke, etc., with a sense of having some quality so strongly as to produce a powerful effect. And that's where the uh, word violent violently came from, from the word violet, which itself is from um, comes from the from iodine. So viola was the uh, the, the iodine or ion um, in the pre-Indo-European substrate Mediterranean language. Very interesting. So that is really cool connection. Yeah, yeah, because that violet, the flower there growing on the ground, this little thing inconspicuously under the clumps by the trailhead, had enough power that it overtook my being and made me write a poem, which then you published and gave the uh neil postman award you know for <laughs> this is pretty funny oh no that was the divorce poem the divorce one, yeah, yeah. but i'll read divorce later or maybe now if you're ready i don't know yeah sure do you want to read that now yeah so that's not in the book so that's attached okay. uh, i gave you that document so uh, let me find it here to divorce and this poem um this poem wouldn't exist if it wasn't for my friend matt because it was about it's about matt's life it's not my divorce it was it was matt's divorce and so he was going through um you know, this experience and, uh, and then the experience that I write about was just happened. And I just wanted to write about what I was experiencing, but it totally just got meshed in with, mm. with Matt's experience. So divorce, he has flown head. I'm going to take my glasses off. He has flown headfirst against the glass and now lies stunned on the stone patio, nothing moving, but his quick beating heart. So you go to him Pick up his delicate body and hold him in the cupped palms of your hands. You have always known he was beautiful, 
but it's only now in his stillness, in his vulnerability, that you see the miracle of his being, how so much life fits in so small a space. And so you wait, keeping him warm against the unseasonable cold, trusting that when the time is right, when he has recovered both his strength and his sense of up and down, he will gather himself, flutter once or twice, and then rise, a streak of dazzling color against a slowly lifting sky. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Is is it really interesting to read that now? Um, thinking about, I, I imagined it was um, your own divorce. I think because we published that poem um, about first um, your newlyweds with a dog. Remember? Yeah, Canis Interruptus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Canis Interruptus. Very funny poem about um, you know, about about just being married. And um, so I think I, I sort of read one into the other as, as a narrative, but it's really, it's even more touching, I think, to think of it as, um, you know, witnessing what a friend is going through and um, in, in the way that's just a wonderful metaphor, which is something that you do in your poems frequently. It's just, you have these great, great metaphors. A lot of times they're extended like they are through here. Um, can you explain a little bit about where those come from? And is, is that, is what strikes you the metaphor at first, or is it in the process of writing? Um, and how do you, how do you, I don't know, make yourself think in terms of metaphor. The, the interesting thing, talking to somebody who won the Neil Postman Award for Metaphor, is when I, when I started that um, award, I thought we'd like, get a lot of submissions that were like, full of more metaphor, and it was because we didn't have a lot of... It's, it's a, sort of a surprising lack of metaphor in, in poems that made me want to do an award for like that. And, um, and, and it's hard to find, actually, like going through the poems, to find things that are really original. Like there's great images, great storytelling, great you know, narrative and observations and, and things about life in the poems. But, but focusing on metaphor, it, it really you know, makes it stark how rare they are uh, to be pulled off so well. So how do you approach creating metaphors and making that newness in the world that, that they represent? Well, I think it's, um, it goes back to what you said about being a roamer. Like I'm... I, uh, if, if <laughs> everything, you know, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness kind of a thing. So I tend to be unanchored in the world, you know? And so a lot of my poems, I feel maybe if I'm going to critique and be on the negative side of things, I'll say they're, they're too disconnected from, you know, the kind of poetry that a lot of people do like where it's, you know, you got a relationship of a particular person you're talking about or a specific event that happened. And my, my experience of the world tends to be sort of, on this, you know, it's not abstract, but it's it's more on the universal plane than the particular. Now, and you often can't really depict a universal without a particular experience. But even though I'm agnostic, you know, I feel that I'm a fairly my mind tends to go in ways that are that are spiritual and larger constructs than smaller things. So. And then I guess the other thing I would say about metaphor is I tend to write that way because metaphors have a lot more room in them. Because if you create a metaphor, it's going to, people will respond to it or not. But if they do respond to it, they're going to probably respond to it in many different ways. Because, you know, how does that metaphor connect with their experience of the world? And the thing I didn't, that I don't like about prose so much is it doesn't leave a lot of room often. I mean, there are you know, fiction writers and, and prose writers who write with a lot of poetic space. Like when I read There, There by Tommy Orange, to me that that felt kind of like a poem. It was just beautiful. And there's many more. But but for me, I, I'm a poet of concision. I like to I like to write as few words as possible. I mean, there, sometimes I can get 
too verbose in my poetry, but in general, I kind of write poems that are pretty narrowed down. And the reason, one of the reasons, or I think a benefit of it is that leaves room for the reader to put themselves and their experience into the poem and be able to react to it from their way. Like I don't like over prescribing the meaning of a poem. And sometimes I was recently, you know, in an MFA program and exchanging uh, with a, you know, a, a great poet who would often ask me, well, you know, what does this mean? And, and uh, I, 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 I kind of resist that to some degree, you know, I, it, it'll, it might mean something for me and, and it doesn't even have to mean something for me. If I get some words that flow through me and I feel like there's something there, I don't feel like I have to know what that something is necessarily. My job is to pass it on. And, you know, and so someone else may, and it's funny because people will talk to me about poems that I've written and tell me, talk about them and describe what they mean in ways that would have never occurred to me. And they're, they're assuming that's what I mean, but it's what they mean when they, you know, what's the meaning they get when they read it. So I think metaphor just, just allows that to happen in a way that, you know, straight narrative doesn't. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I've I've felt that way um, about prose for a long time. It's hard for me to read for, the, but I've never heard anybody quite articulate it, and I haven't been able to really put my finger on it either. But it is that sense that like, like even when a great line goes by, that the sort of text is still going, and you don't have that space to just appreciate the the moment, you know. And, and it feels so. Um, it's just like too much, even when it's really good writing in prose for me, which is what yeah. what draws me to poetry. Um, th there's a question here from Spartacus. Um, um, what, um, it, it touched on something you said earlier about the mountain in, in the sense of time, but, um, Spartacus asks, what is the poet relationship with time? Do you feel that if you tell like a scientist at the beginning of each paragraph to the reader where you are going, has the journey finished? So, so how is, um, just how is how does time operate within a poem, and and how do you think of that? Because you know the the biggest example, of course, is the the haiku, where the you know the sort of there's a cut, there's a kirigi, and and there are different spaces of time between the two. Um, and and I think poetry does that a lot too. But how do you how do you think about that the time in poems? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, my first reaction. I don't. I'm not having a good answer to that. But my first reaction is that. I would like my poems to be timeless, you know, in some ways in that, I mean, there are beautiful poems that are written that are just very specifically occurring in time and the, and they can be amazing. Like when I think about uh, like Ellen Bass's gate C 22, it's just, you know, there's just this really real experience happening in a, in an airport gate. That's just gorgeous. Right. That there's no, there's no like, you know, dimensions of the infinite or mystery or anything. It's just, it's just beautiful love between two people, you know? So that's, that's awesome. And I, I wish I could write more of those and occasionally I get a little bit of it, but, but um, yeah, I, I, I think I want expansiveness, you know? I, and so that would mean in space in feeling and time and all of it. Uh, so I, if anything, I guess I, I'm not that rooted in time. So mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't. I, I wish I had a better answer, and you know, and I'll think about it later, and it'll be too late. But, <laughs> but I appreciate <laughs> no, the question. <laughs> I think that's a good answer. Uh, let's hear another poem. Okay, let's see. What should we do here? Um, let's do. Well, since it's it's kind of that, let's do this. Uh, page seventy-seven, excerpts in the book. Ex excerpts from a field guide to getting lost. 
it also goes back to your question about roaming and all that stuff and my general approach. So, so there's this book that was written by Rebecca Solnit called the, A Field Guide to Getting Lost. And I've since read the book, but when I wrote this poem, I hadn't read it. So I just was intrigued by the title, A Field Guide to Getting Lost. And as a someone with a zoology degree and forestry stuff, field guides were a big part of my life, you know, but it was for birds and trees and that kind of thing. And so A Field Guide to Getting Lost just sounded really interesting. So I thought about what could be in a book like that. And, uh, and, um, and then subsequently, I read the book later, and it you know, has nothing to do with what I wrote. But anyway, excerpts from A Field Guide to Getting Lost. If you have a compass, smash it. Nothing can point you to true anything, let alone true north. Besides, and never forget this, you are trying to get lost. You may be gone for a long time, so be sure not to pack any food or water. It is only the hungry who feed, only the thirsty who are quenched. Before you leave, be sure to write a note telling everyone exactly where you will not be. The last thing you need is someone coming to your rescue. Now, find the best possible map and tear it up. Sorry, the best map possible and tear it up. You will be traveling on a scale no one has ever drawn. Do not leave a string of crumbs behind you. This would only attract predators. On second thought, go ahead. Write postcards telling everyone of your adventures. Be sure to lie like a fox leaving false tracks. Someday they will thank you. You will not know when you have arrived. But if you think you have, you haven't. If you think you haven't, you probably have. If you come to a fork in the road, Stab yourself in the foot with it. You will reach your destination much faster if you are limping. Better yet, use it to pluck out your eyes. There are many signposts along the way. Maybe now you will learn to see. Excellent. That was an excerpt from a field guide to getting lost from the bitten world. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that, about about what nature means to you? And And I don't know how to say this, but like, there's a sense that just nature, we're losing nature at such a rapid rate. And um, in our connection to nature at an even more rapid rate than that. Um, and, and the thing that, that troubles me the most are the lack of insects. Um, yeah. do, do you have that experience over the years of, of have you seen the changes in nature? I mean, you know, it, it is true that I remember driving and just a car being covered in bugs. And then, and, and now that does not happen. And um, and that's kind of terrifying because who eats the bug? I mean, it just tr- goes down the food chain. I mean, how many fewer birds? I think there are half as many birds as there were 50 years ago because they don't have as much food. Um, so have you experienced that change? And in, in, I mean, what is your, your sort of observations of that? Well, I, I know it's happening, but I tend to be so immersed in it that, and I live in Colorado. So, you know, I live in places where, there's still a lot of, you know, they would say untrammeled wilderness areas. Um, and so I, I just spend all my time out there. So, and I can always find that solitude almost anywhere I go, you know, I, I find it. So it's, it's definitely happening. And, but I, you know, I, um, so I just, I go there and I, I think I just try, I, you know, I trust a river more than I trust people, (laughs) you know? And, uh, so that's where I want to spend my time. And, you know, and I write about it. I try and write about it. What, what's that book that was just the overstory. So in terms of prose, if you want to read a great book, the over, did you read the overstory? No, I haven't. No. So it's Richard Powers. And uh, I think he won one of the big prizes. I don't remember which one, but, uh, and it's just about, you know, trees and people's relation to trees. And it's just a beautiful, 
beautiful book and it doesn't you know it, it it's it, part of it is about a group of people who go and try and you know they they just get so driven by the by the you know desecration of nature that they they turn into you know kind of earth first type people where they're willing to put their life on the line to to save you know all of us really but but nature and and it you know it doesn't you know they don't succeed mm-hmm. but you know that's the thing like you know, we, we just have to fight the fight we fight, whether we hope to win or not. And so I fight that fight through poetry. You know, there, there are people who are, you know, and they say, well, you know, poetry doesn't change anything in the world, in the world. But, but I think, I think it can, and I think it does, you know, and it's like, you know, so I'll, I'll write a poem that will be, and maybe I'll read one of those next, that, that is what I would say a social justice poem, which, in, which includes, you know, nature. And, it may seem, you know, how many people read it? You know, I don't know if the people who do read it. Does, does it do anything? I don't know. But it's like, you know, there are 8 billion of us and, and I'm going to do my tiny, tiny little thing. And I just think if you're putting out a positive thing into the world and if we all did that little tiny thing, it, you know, it has to matter, you know, at some point. And so, um, so, you know, and my calling seems to be writing, you know, I, you know, and I could, I mean, I, in the past, I've been involved in more like, protesty kind of things and stuff like that but uh and those are important and i'm glad you know i i i shouldn't say that i have a lot of respect for <laughs> for you know sabotage in regards to the environment but but when i hear that you know someone stops a pipeline flowing you know i'm i'm cheering you know i think that's awesome and uh anyway i'm starting to ramble now but <laughs> <laughs> no um uh, first, I thought it was Richard Powers, the overstory someone's mentioning, yeah. just so people can uh, check it. And then I think you mentioned a gate poem. Did you mean Naomi Shihab Nye's Gate A4? Is that, or is there a different poem by Alan Bass? Yes, Gate C22. Gate C22. Just, yeah, just go, you know, sometime on your own. Go ahead and read that. It's just, yeah, we'll have it's to just, look that up. I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, um, it's, uh, yeah, I won't describe it. But, and I used to think that was her best poem ever. I mean, I I don't know all of her work anyway. But and but I just recently picked up her newer book, uh, called Indigo, mm-hmm. and she has a poem in there called um, "Bringing Flowers to Salinas Valley State Prison." That is just you know a knockout. And again, very rooted in time, very rooted in place, very rooted in specific people, not some big universal thing where my ten, my brain tends to go. And uh, it's up there as well. So I'm just for the poets out there, if they don't know yeah, that. Yeah, poem. maybe maybe in the open line section, we'll read. I, I pulled it up here, Gate C22. I'm not familiar with this. But Ellen was on a Rattlecast like 30, if anybody wants to go watch that episode back then. Uh, let's hear the next poem. All right. So let's, um, yeah, let me see. What do I want to do here of those? Let's go for... Uh, countertop so it's one of the ones not in the book and it's uh on page four in that little pdf i sent you so countertop i run my hand along the surface and feel a smoothness like volcanic glass the granite comes all the way from india but when i look closely i see nebulae i see galaxies i see little black suns orbited by little black planets and on the planets, deep black holes dug by broken black bodies. And I see the black bodies heaving black stones and the stones burnished in black blood and buffed by black bone to the smoothness of volcanic glass. And on the counter, I lay bread, apples, cheese, green olives, and those little swords we use to stab the olives, 
so we can lift them to our mouths without dirtying our hands. Yeah, another great, great metaphor at the end, another great example of that. Um, and there's a question here, let me pull this up again, from um, Dick Westheimer. He, he asked about, um, about how, ide- how your use of ideas sort of is a source of poems. Ah, here it is. So here's a question. Could you talk more about how poems that come f- um, about poems come from, how poems come from ideas, I guess, is, is what his question is. All right. Well, then I'll, now I know what I'll read for my next poem. But <laughs> how poems come from ideas. Um, well, there are things that just drive me, right? So, so let's talk about Countertop. Um, I was, I, I think this was, you know, several years ago, but I think what was happening is we were, I, I, my friend Ellie was house sitting somewhere and I was over there and, and they have this beautiful countertop, you know, and, you know, these granite countertops are just gorgeous, you know, and I, I, I love things like stone and wood and sky, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's there, I could see the appeal, but I had recently either, I think I had read something about that a lot of the granite is being mined in India and a lot of it is slave labor even to this day, you know? And so I just, that, that some of that, sometimes what drives a poem, is just the, the paradox, the cognitive dissonance that comes about when you, of something that's just beautiful that you love. And then you, you know, you, you hear about there's the dark side of that same thing, <laughs> you know? And so, and so that's where countertop came from. But uh, but when you and so I would say this is like in the political social justice kind of poem. But so there's this um, a poet, Reginald Dwayne Betts, who I think was a recent MacArthur Grant uh, awardee. And uh, he had said something in a, um, a Zoom that I was attending a podcast or whatever it was, where he said that you need like the more powerful political statement, it will include a self-incrimination. Like if you don't own your part of it, then, you know, maybe you shouldn't be talking, <laughs> you know, unless you really don't have a part in it. And, you know, I don't own a countertop, a, a granite countertop, but still I, you know, the parts I'm, I'm responsible as well for, and a lot of us are for the things that, uh, that are, you know, ruining people's lives and, and ruining our planet. And so, you know, I, I try and, uh, cause I think if I own my part of it, then it, it, it invites the reader to err. Er, you know, own their own part. And if there is going to be any change at all in the world from my minuscule little push, uh, it's going to have to come from the fact that there, you know, other people are going to, are going to be moved that little bit, you know, and, and, and recognize their own part in it. So. Yeah. And, and speaking of um, social justice, we talked a little bit on our, you know, pre pre-call about your use of the name Jose, whereas um, in, in emails, you sign it, Tony. And, but you said it was important to you to use Jose in publishing. Can you just explain a little bit about that? You, you mentioned uh, why. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about it, too, because there's a chance that there's some people who knew me from high school, you know, a long time ago. And they're like, why the hell is he right under Jose? He's not Jose. They, you know, some of them might not even known that was my name. But so at the time I started writing this 10 years ago, I was living, you know, and working. I was living outside of Aspen, but I was working in Aspen. And in Aspen... And in this valley in general, where there's a fairly large, you know, Hispanic population, sort of the, the there's, a, there's a part of the prevailing white culture that would assume anyone named Jose mows lawns or washes dishes or, you know, is a, is a menial servant. And, you know, and, and there's not everybody for sure. But, uh, but, and so it was important to me that, that 
people see a name like Jose Alcantara and realize that, that people with those kinds of names can do things other than menial labor. And it's kind of ironic because I do do a lot of <laughs> manual labor, but but maybe by choice more than some other people have it. And then the other part is my father's name is Jose Alcantara, but he doesn't have a middle name. So that's why it's Jose A. Alcantara, just to distinguish me from him. Um, but it's weird for me. It's hard to, you know, because anytime I do anything, like I meet someone who's first encountered me through my poetry and they're calling me Jose and it just feels weird, you know. And so I, I but for some people I let it, I just that's still how they know me and other people if i figure well we're going to have a long-term relationship where either in person or online or whatever then i i go by tony over there so mm -hmm. um, well let's hear the next poem okay so let's uh again on the ones that i handed to you uh it's called um let me see what page it's on uh, page six first protocol of zion and again this was because the the gentleman asked about ideas and poems so this poem i don't really know where it began per se but I know like through the process of editing and before I finished it and decided to send it out that I had a real, I, I was trying to accomplish a lot with this poem. This is what I would call an ambitious poem, not ambitious for me, but ambitious for the poem. I wanted to do a lot and it's a short poem. So, so but anyway, we'll read it. And then I, I, I'd like to talk about kind of where it came from and stuff. Okay. So the first protocol of Zion with Usura hath no man, a house of good stone, Ezra pound. It's the interest that interests me, the far and above, that which exceeds the nominal value of the exchange. I want to give back something beyond the original debt, something gratuitous yet essential like the peacock's tail or the fringe on the fringed gentian, how it grows purple, miraculous, above tree line, amid the white expansive stone. <coughs> so, so that poem, um, <clears throat> I think, the easiest way to get into it, or, or let me go back a little bit. I don't know, like, where does this poem first come from? Does it come from my love of the fringe gentian? I mean, that could be like, you know, I moved to Colorado in 1993. And when I arrived, I arrived to teach at this place called the Keystone Science School. <clears throat> and it's up at 9,000 feet. But I think we were there for maybe a day or two. And right away, they took us to this hut that's at 11,500 feet or something. I think it was the Fowler-Hilliard Fowler hut for those who are Colorado folks. And we spent a couple of days there kind of getting to know the, the crew and getting to know the habitat because the teaching was mostly, you know, the ecology of the, of the alpine and subalpine and, and montane, you know, environment. <clears throat> and that's the first time I ever saw a fringe gentian. It's just this gorgeous flower, but it's made more gorgeous because of where it grows. It just grows up in these, you know, these alpine, subalpine environments that are, you know, what some people call the Alpine sublime. And so maybe this poem started back then, you know, it's just that, that fringe gentian. But ultimately, I guess I would want to explain it in a parallel way. Like when you think about Woody Allen, I've loved Woody Allen's movies. I still love Woody Allen's movies. <laughs> but, you know, and then we have this issue that maybe he's a pedophile, you know. I know that I don't know. I know that you don't know. I know that none of us probably know except Woody and the kid, whether he really is a pedophile. And so it's easy to either say, well, I'm, I don't care, or I'm never going to look at a Woody Allen movie again. And I think that's a cop out. And I think it's better to, you know, you have to, if you want to, I mean, you don't have to, but yeah, I think it's better. I want to engage in that kind of thing. And I, you know, and so, so I'm doing this with Ezra Pound. And if you're, if you're for the people who aren't poets, you probably never heard of Ezra Pound, but if you are a poet, you know, Ezra Pound is a big name, even if you don't 
read his poetry or like his poetry. And so, but I want to, so Ezra Pound, not only was this big thing in poetry, <clears throat> but he was a famous anti-Semite. And during the war was making broadcasts for Mussolini in favor of the, uh, the Axis powers. So, you know, it's that same kind of thing with Woody Allen. So I wanted to, but, you know, as a poet, you know, the um, station in a metro and the leaves on a wet black bow or whatever it is, he's got, you know, there's some things. And this line, the line that I have there with Usura hath no man a house of good stone. To me, that is just a beautiful line because I like that archaic language of hath and in the metaphor, you know, it's a house of good stone. He's clearly not talking about the fact that you can't go buy a fine Italian marble and build a nice house. It's a metaphor. So it's this gorgeous line, and I don't want to just toss it away <clears throat> because Ezra Pound was insane. So I want to confront it. And so the title, The First Protocol of Zion, comes from one of the classic anti-Semite, you know, things is there's this alleged manifesto that explains the Jewish plan to dominate the world and it's called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So like in the way that the uh, LGBTQ movement has reclaimed the word queer and the way that the African-American has reclaimed the word nigger and say, no, these are our words and, and you don't get to use them. I, I guess I'm trying to do the same thing with Ezra Pound and his anti-Semitism. <laughs> I'm trying mm -hmm. to turn something ugly and and make it beautiful like the fringe gentian is beautiful to me. So. So I just take that word usura, you know, the usury of charging interest on a loan, which is part of his, you know, you know, I mean, I kind of agree that usury is a horrible thing. You know, I think it's absurd that people get rich simply because they have money to give other people. And so they make more money because they already have money. It is definitely a problem. <laughs> but for him, he equates that with Judaism, which is obviously absurd. So, you know, I just wanted to take and, and show a beautiful flower living in a house of good stone that that fringe gentian doesn't need to have a fringe, right? You know, the peacock, well, I guess maybe the peacock needs to have a tail to have, <laughs> but it seems like it's pretty, you know, mm -hmm. pretty gratuitous. So that's, that's, so that's an idea that's very, you know, that is a very idea driven poem, but it's, uh, you know, I, I feel like I tried to make it uh, do a good job by, embedding that idea in something that's beautiful on its own, you know, to carry the weight of the idea. Yeah, it's interesting how you describe that. I, I always think of poems as um, you know, living in the spaces between our thoughts and, and the, the ambiguities between them. And, and so, so that's always the, the difficulty with anything political um, or anything sort of motivated where you're trying to sort of address a topic is that they end up you know, in our ideas instead of the spaces between our ideas. Um, so how do you confront, because you mentioned a few times writing political poetry, like how do you, how do you get past that problem and, and make sure that you're saying something that that's complicated enough that it's worth saying? Yeah. Um, well, first I, my, I mean, my own, my first reader is me, right? So I, I, I can't spend too much time thinking about, how someone else is going to react to it. I, I have to just kind of trust my instinct. And then, and then I send it off to these other poets and the, you know, they'll, they'll correct me, you know, or, or they might, or they might say, Hey, you're a little off the line here or whatever. So, and I trust them because I know them, you know, but I think if you're writing, I know they, you know, they're, they're two different things. Some people say you have to be, keep considering your audience and to some degree you do, but, but I think if you're spending too much time worrying about how other people are going to react, it's not going to work. But, on the other hand, if you're writing a political poem, you can't start off. I mean, people tend to be defensive about their, I mean, me included, you know, defensive about the 
a place that they're standing in the world in regards to an issue that affects their life, you know? And so if you, you can't, you can't get those defenses up right away. So, you know, you need an, you need an entry point. And so for me, the, the fringe gentian is the entry point. And then like, like I said, with bets, the self-incrimination is, is an entry point. And, you know, I wrote a, there's a poem in this book. Uh, I don't know if I should read it or not, but I don't know. I don't know if I will, but there's a poem in the bitten world, um, that uh, I can't even remember what it's called right now, but um, Obsidian. And I was told that I should probably take it out. Like one of my people who blurbed the back of my book, who said, you know, you might, you might want to take that poem out. And, uh, you know, but because in that poem, I admit, I confess to my racism. And, you know, I'm, and so, and, and I recently read uh, Kendi's book, Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And, in his and it's an incredible book like you know it's, in some ways it's preaching to the choir i think to me but i still learned a, a hell of a lot by reading that book and in one of his uh, phrases he says denial i think this is a paraphrase but denial is the root of racism and confession is the root of anti-racism and so you know i just uh, i think you know if you can like i said to get before if you can own your part then i think it someone who's reading your, you know, your political position, and I clearly have one in, in the first protocol of Zion, um, that they're more willing to hear it because you've, uh, you've said, Hey, I'm a, I'm a, in some sense, I'm a broken person. You know, maybe you're a broken person too, and it's okay. So I, I just think that's, a, you know, that's a key thing. But. Yeah. Um, uh, kind of follow up question to that. Daniel Mask asks, um, what political issue are you apprehensive of writing about? Is there anything that you avoid? It kind of seems like not. No, probably not. But I need to let me think about that. (laughs) Yeah, because I also have a poem in there in the book called Thou Shalt Not. That's about Christ masturbating on a park bench, you know. So if I'm going to write that, there's probably not a lot I'm not going to write about. But um, I don't know. I don't I don't think that I don't think there's anything I wouldn't touch if I felt I had something new and interesting to say about it, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, we're we're past the hour, um, and before we'll read one last poem. Um, but but what do you have that's going on um, between you know? Because this book is now you mentioned the poems are already four years old or so. What do you have? What do you have that you're working on now? Is there anything that's that's forthcoming or, or a manuscript that you're sending out or anything? When when's the next book going to be? I don't have a book that's forthcoming, but I do have like uh, I have a poem coming out in Plowshares in April. I um, have excuse me, three poems that were just coming out in the Bennington Review, just except, I don't know, actually a publication date. I'm certainly, so what I'm doing now is I'm applying for lots of uh, writing residencies and stuff like that. Uh, Some other writing, like, you know, there's a residency where you can go live at Jack Kerouac's house in Orlando, Florida for three months. Oh yeah, I know somebody who did that, yeah. (laughs) Right. So that's really where my energy is right now. I mean, I'm still trying to write every day, but but that in terms of moving forward that, and then if I, so if I get one of those residencies, it's, it's, uh, I will be doing, I'll be putting together, trying to put together a second collection. I just was doing a semester of an MFA, which I would, the Pacific, people at a Pacific university, just wonderful, particularly the director, but everybody, I mean, Ellen Bass is there and, and, um, Dorian Lux and just some one, uh, Danusha Lamaris, who is just a new discovery for me. And is just a gem, you know, just people like that. And I loved it and I would love to go again, but, Financially, it's a little bit difficult for me right now. And they switched the, uh, it was going to be a personal, this is a long distance program, but you have a in-person residency. And because of COVID, they've now gone back once again to a virtual residency. Oh and I did that 
in, in the fall or the summer in the fall. And it was great, but I, I can't justify spending the money that it's going to cost me and the debt I have to go into for a virtual residency. So I'm going to hold off on that and maybe re-enroll when this, when we can be in person again. Um, and, uh, but, um, I'm also, you know, I've been living either house sitting or staying with friends, but mostly I've been living in a tent since July and I was a teacher and, uh, again, you know, I do it and then I stop and then I do it again, but I just, um, I want to be able to write, you know? And so I was putting together a chapbook, uh, I'm putting together poems that might turn into a chapbook about that kind of experience of, tr of trying to be in the world without a, a steady home and a steady job and all the anchors that, that keep us healthy and, uh, feeling like we belong, you know, it's, um, and so it's, and I wrote a poem about an owl called toward a ravishing demise. And, uh, that seems like a good working title for the chapbook as well. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of working on that as well, but we'll see, you know, I'm just, basically I'm just writing and, and trying to find more time to write. Yeah. Well, I, I hope you do, um, you know, write that chapbook and, and it sounds like something that, that I haven't seen having read thousands of, of chapbooks and, and books and things like that. So, um, let, let's finish up with, um, oh, and I wanted to say too, that the Pacific program is just amazing. Like we, yeah. um, so many poets we publish go through that program. So if anybody's out there looking for a program, that's definitely the best one. I was going to agree with that too. Uh, let, let's finish out the interview with a, one last poem. Okay. I think I'll, I'll read uh, lady in rags and it's uh, again, not in the book. Okay. So let me find it and you find it. And just, and uh, this poem, like the, my book, the bitten world is dedicated to, if you see the, um, the dedication page, that's, uh, and that's Eleanor J. Scott. But there's there's actually a lot of Scots in my life. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, the director of the program at, at Pacific is named Scott Corb and is just a, a glorious, wonderful human being who I've never met, but, <laughs> you know, on the Zoom. And then I was thinking I, I played a, on a volleyball team in college where three there are six people on a volleyball team and three of them were Scots. And now Ellie Scott has been on this poetry ride for me for basically, well, for the last seven years. And, um, and so this poem that was, it's inspired by her, but also I was a game of Thrones fan. <laughs> so I, I didn't watch originally when it you know first came out, but eventually went and watched it. And I think I've watched it all through twice now, but, um, so it's also from, uh, and I can't remember her, the character's name, but, uh, you know, the, the, the woman, did you, were you a Game of Thrones fan? Yeah. Yeah. Except for the last season or the last half of the last season. What was the woman but... who became, a, who, who was like in love with Jamie Lannister, who became the, you know, she was the guard to. Yeah. Br Bren? Bren, Bren. Yeah. yeah so this poem yeah. is inspired by both Ellie, <laughs> who actually did what it says in the poem and then by that character. So it's called the lady in rags. She puts her pants on all wrong. Seems out zippers in pockets closed a reminder that the world is convention is compromise is habit and that she will not play along she wants to be uncomfortable inconvenienced irritated her pants a spur in the flank a pebble in the shoe she wears her clothes like a flag like a banner bef born before her in battle she is marching to the heart of it passing by the watering hole keeping her own company she will not trade something for nothing will not stand with her hands stuffed in her pockets. She sallies forth singing a song no one has ever sung, a song she writes as she goes. Beautiful. Lady in Rags, a newer poem. 
Um, Tony, thanks so much for being a guest. It's just been a great, great hour to spend with you and, and sharing your poems, get to know you better. Um, that's why I love doing these Rattlecasts, but it's been great. Thank you, Tim. Awesome. <laughs> see you later. Yep. See you later. Bye. Bye. That was uh, Jose A. Alcantara, of course, with his book, which you can find right right here, The Bitten World. It's available if you go to um, teapotbach.org right now. It's not available yet. So like bookmark that or something. And um, I looked around. I think we jumped the gun a little bit on this, in this interview because it's not quite available. Um, I couldn't find it on Amazon or, or, or small press distribution, um, as Tony said, but, um, but it's a great book. And so, so pick this up when, when you can find it. Um, and it should be up there soon. I'm, I'm pretty sure. And the website for teapot Bach, um, it, it's actually, um, it's T B T E B O T B A C H dot org, T-B-O-T Bach.org. And, and they're, um, part of the, um, collective where rattle came out of in the 90s actually here in la from that those jack grapes workshops that we used to do um and and rattle was a class chapbook of there and, and one of the other class projects was spillway and teapot bach all in this sort of collective i think they called it the los angeles poets collective back in the 90s so it was interesting to see that they were publishing um tony's book and then once again that is the bitten world and let me read before we go to break let me share this poem from alan bass um, this is gate C22, which I, maybe I've read this before, but I too, when, when Tony uh, mentioned it, I was thinking of, um, the Naomi Shihab Nye poem, um, gate A, gate A2, I think her poem is, but this is Alan Bass's gate C22 poem. So let's, let's, let's read this since we've talked about it. There's Alan. And here is the poem. This is from, um, poets.org, the Academy of American Poets website, gate C22. At gate C22, in the Portland airport, a man in a broadband leather hat kissed a woman arriving from Orange County. They kissed and kissed and kissed, long after the other passengers clicked the handles of their carry-ons and wheeled briskly toward short-term parking. The couple stood there, arms wrapped around each other, like he'd just staggered off the boat at Ellis Island, like she'd been released at last from ICU, snapped out of a coma, survived bone cancer, made it down from Annapurna in only the clothes she was wearing. Neither of them was young. His beard was gray. She carried a few extra pounds you could imagine her saying she had to lose. But they kissed lavish kisses like the ocean in the early morning, the way it gathers and swells, sucking each rock under, swallowing it again and again. We were all watching, passengers waiting for the delayed flight to San Jose, the stewardess, Stewardesses, the pilots, the aproned woman icing, Cinnabons, the man selling sunglasses. We couldn't look away. We could taste the kisses crushed in our mouths. But the best part was his face. When he drew back and looked at her, his smile soft with wonder, almost as though he were a mother still open from giving birth. As your mother must have looked at you, no matter what happened after. If she beat you or left you, or you're lonely now. You once lay there, the vernix not yet wiped off, and someone gazed at you, as if you were the la first sunrise seen from the earth, the whole wing of the airport hushed, all of us trying to slip into that woman's middle-aged body, her plaid Bermuda shorts, sleeveless blouse, glasses, little gold hoop earrings tilting our heads up. Yeah, beautiful poem. That is from The Human Line. Um, as gate C22 
by Ellen Bass. Thanks to, to Tony for, for highlighting that poem and, and suggesting that we read it. So there you go. And now we're going to go to break. And um, uh, let me show, tell you how it works. If you'd like to share poems. Oops, that's the wrong one. There we go. If you'd like to share poems for the open lines, uh, first email the poem if you haven't yet to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. Then call in over Skype or the phone to read. Um, over the phone, the number is 818-850-7727. Just call, let it ring a few times, and hang up. Um, and I'll call you back when the time is right, within about an hour. If you'd like to join us over Skype, over video, um, that's the video option, just send me a chat message. I'm at Rattle Poetry, all one word. Just send me a chat message, say hi, I'd like to share a poem, and I will call you when it's your turn. Pick one or the other, not both, because otherwise I'll call you twice, and then you'll be like, oh, you just talked to me five minutes ago, um, which is fine too, but but just do one or the other, whichever you prefer. And, um, and I'll be right back after I stand up and stretch and get everything organized. See you in a minute. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Let me stand up and stretch a little bit. It's a long time to be sitting still, so you should probably stand up and stretch too if you haven't been walking around while listening to this podcast. Um, now, the prompt for this week was... Um, write a poem about the winter solstice and um, I have a sort of a maybe a, a first draft of a poem or an early an early draft of something I think I might work on it later today a little bit I didn't have a whole lot of time this morning but here we go with um, my little poem this is a few lines for solstice I wonder how this sounds a few lines for solstice we wander the dark like stars unable to fill the void with our brightness even Orion's lost his way, imaginary bow in hand, but the dog star follows. So light your distant lights, sing your oldest songs, forgive the earth forever tipping. That is my little little poem for the solstice. Megan didn't have one this week, so um, and let's uh, let's go to the open lines and see what you have for um for your poems. If you want to share anything, once again, you can share, I should have said this before, but you can share anything you want. You can share recently published poems if you'd like. You can share prompt poems um, about the winter solstice, which was a couple days ago, of course. Or you could uh, share poetry spawn poems, just anything you'd like. So feel free to share anything. And let's, um, who should we go to first? Let's go to, um, let's go to, and we have a first-time caller, but we'll do that later. We always like to do the first-time caller a little later so you can see how it goes. Let's do um, Angela Gardner first. Angela hasn't been on in a while. I think the earlier time might not be as good for her as, as the later time that used to be. Hey, Angela, how you hey, doing? Angela, how you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good I'm to good see you. Yeah. Are you seeing me? I hope you're not seeing me. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. Good, good to hear you, I should say. It was a, a euphemism. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so so what do you want to share today um i was going to share my poets respond poem from this week uh brushing the center of the solar system ah so do you want to describe a little bit what what it was about yeah so um so basically you know there's been a lot of explorations in um here i are you i'm just want to make sure i'm gonna i didn't exit you out. Sorry. Oh, no <laughs> I was hearing you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, there's been a lot of like space explorations, but one of the things is that it actually, the probe kind of, I thought went in April, but they finally got the data back. But 
um, basically it's not the in quotes touch the sun, but they kind of touch the outer atmosphere. And it's funny because, you know, I feel like as a kids and even me, like, you know, we're always adding a sun to our paper, right? You know, mm-hmm. when we're when we're drawing. So, you know, I was thinking about it and I, I talked to my son about it. I'm like, hey, like they touch the sun and he's like, that's impossible. And I'm like, I know it feels like it would be impossible to touch the sun. So I just kind of did this little poem. Um, it, it's more the outer atmosphere, but to even get that close is, is an accomplishment. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's amazing. My psyche last week was about that. Cause it's, um, it's, it's, it's really just amazing to see that we get that close even. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, you know, I think we, I think the one cool thing about this year, you know, with all the COVID stuff, I just feel like, you know, I've actually gotten more into space mm-hmm. <laughs> and stuff, you know, maybe just because we want to be, you know, out, off this planet a little bit. So it's, it's kind of nice to like follow all the space stuff that's going on. Yeah, well, let's hear this brushing the center of the solar system. I'll, I'll put it up. My son added a big yellow ball to construction paper with happy beams. Did I teach him that it's really a star? He asked once why it dips in the sea. It's a heavenly body, like a god I've been taught to worship as a child. It was happiness peeking out of the clouds and brings seasonal sadness when it hides. It can be far away, but close at times. Look once and it sets fire to your eyes. I had wished to reach it feel the gleam, to ride past on a spaceship as it shines east and see the heat splashes rise off its sides. I looked at the sun I drew being touched by the probe. We wondered why it didn't burn, but the metal didn't melt or disappear. Science tapped its flaming shoulder to ask if we can be friends for another million years. Yeah, that's fascinating. I just, I love that topic. And, and this, it's such an important probe too, because there's, there's mysteries. We don't understand why it's so hot there which is just a fascinating a fascinating thing to think about. Like it's a I think it's 1.7 degree or 7 million degrees Celsius there in the at the edge of the earth of the solar corona, but then the sun itself is only like 10,000 degrees if I remember right, something like that. So it's it's very um sort of I don't know, it's an odd sort of magnetic thing going on I think, but but fascinating to be, you know, at the at the cutting edge of research. Yeah, and I just think it's I mean the sun has always fascinated everyone because it brings it brings so many emotions when you look at it or well try not to look at it. you're not supposed to look at it but <laughs> but when you but I mean it brings you know it's such a big part of our lives it really is the center of our world um, obviously but um, in so many in so many ways yeah well thanks for sharing that poem a great poem and, and a great topic to be talking about thanks Angela always great to hear from you. You too. Have a great day. Yep, you too. Bye. Bye. It was Angela Gartner with Brushing the Center of the Solar System. Let's go to, um, we'll go to uh, Nivedita Karthik because it's late there in India. And then we'll go to uh, Caitlin Buxbaum. We'll hit up uh, Dick Westheimer. We'll do Spartacus, Bev Wendell, Atherstone, Zachary Honeycutt's here, Philip Stern, Mike Bales. So we've got a good lineup here in the open lines. So um, let's go to uh, let's go to Mike Bales and then let's go to Caitlin and uh, yeah let's do that Mike Bales. Can you get away from the phone. So far, it's been an excellent broadcast today. 
Yeah, it has a great guest. Uh, I, I, you know, they, I, I was looking forward to this for a long time because I've been asking him to be on the show, and we keep being like, "When's your book coming out?" And he keep being like, "You know, it'll be out in a couple months." And uh, that was like a year and a half or so ago. I started asking him, so it's great to, to finally get him on. Um, so, so Mike, Mike, what do you, what do you have to share with us today? Did I do both poems? Yeah, Good sure. Time. I have um, the other oh. side of the door. Did you email both? Let me see. The others on your okay. is on the submission manager. Sure. Well, Admittable. let's uh, yeah, let's start with the other side of the door, and then we'll do uh, the other. Actually, let's start with the the, the poet respond poem. So, um, I'll be glad to. Yeah. So, um, what was the poet respond poem about? Well, I know you're a little weary about COVID. Everyone is, but this is kind of a happy thing about it, where we found music can be therapy for people with COVID, and there's a lot of there's a lot of joy in the coverage. Um, I read about it in different sources. I didn't know what exactly to put down, you know, as the uh, email connection, but mm-hmm. I heard about it in different places. And this poem is called Measures of Song and Breath. I pad in hand as the nurse stands under a light. Music plays and the patient struggles to breathe. His wife stands outside a third, the third floor window and waves while he can only watch. He sings along as the music plays and as if in therapy stretches his lungs. And in time he hopes to dance. Refrains of don't stop believing and here comes the sun played ease breathing and the isolation felt as they take on new meanings. Somewhere else, nurses and staff sing as a COVID survivor is wheeled to the front door while elsewhere and piped into hospital rooms, Dolly Parton and a thousand virtual singers share songs to spread a sense of joy as patients are given a second chance to live their lives. Yeah, great poem, and, and uh, a good thing to point out, the, 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 the measures of song and breath. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Yeah, you should have seen this one video. It's amazing. Uh, patients being we- wheeled out of the down a hallway and zoom out towards the front door and he had a bag in his hand and everyone was just and everyone was just cheering mm-hmm. the hallways of people that and he got to this one thing and people started singing and after a little while i realized they were singing don't stop believing <laughs> yeah yeah that's excellent and uh so the other the other point we have is on the other side of the door so do you want to explain a little bit about this one well I'm thrilled it came out last summer, but I didn't realize till later, and I just got the copy of the magazine. It's called Star Poets. Uh-huh. It's a nice editor out of Wisconsin who publishes me and asks for poems. And I've loved working in Wisconsin as a flagger. I've seen Sturgeon Bay and Door County one time when I was in Wisconsin for a weekend and had a day off, but I've also worked around there. My last assignment was by Whitefish Bay. And as we were leaving the work site, the last thing I saw when I was leaving my last assignment, I looked over my shoulder and I saw Lake Michigan. Door County is between, uh, is Wisconsin between Green Bay and Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. Another story is north of it is there's a strait that goes from Green Bay into Lake Michigan. Oh, and yeah. its waters are very turbulent and dangerous because uh, Green Bay's waters are 10 degrees warmer than Lake Michigan. Oh, interesting. So yeah. it was about, it's pretty much about me being up in Door County. And it's, and Door has kind of two meanings for this poem. 
which I hope the listeners hear. And it's called On the Other Side of the Door. Tell me if and when the lake swell between the trees whisper secrets in soft winds of this other life. Seagulls circle and fly over reflections of sun on waters. Sands and beaches shift in the swell barefoot lovers stroll. A badger runs for cover, something discovered in thin strands of thin-skinned ash surrounding enclaves where residents live hidden lives. Two highways diverge and meet again at death's door where turbulent waters meet. Tourists in glass-bottomed boats seek remains of a native fleet. Yet in Sturgeon Bay, another ship is born, ribs of steel to bear winds and waves. History is told find new life at the Maritime Museum as fireboats on display in the Channel Bob. The curator dusts shelves as a toddler looks at picture books and gasps as parents watch. The night unwinds with another story, and if you read between the lines, a love poem unfolds, words extending past their time. Excellent. That was great. Thanks for sharing that. That was, uh, uh, what was that called again? On the Other Side of the Door by Mike Bales. Thanks so much, Mike. Always a pleasure. Okay. Thanks. It's a good show today. Yeah, thanks. Have a good day. Okay. And now let's go to, um, who do I say was next? Let's go to Caitlin Buxbaum. Hey, Jim. Hey, Caitlin. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Uh, I had my video off because, oh, hold on. I thought I <laughs> muted. Oh. No, no problem. that way. Um, yeah, for reasons. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry I missed you guys last week. That was kind of a bummer. I had intended to be here and wasn't. Um, and now I have too many poems that I want to read, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> so, so what do you want to read? I, so I want to read the one that I attached to the email mm-hmm. first, um, and then a really short one from the link. Okay, this is uh, Everything is Interesting? Yeah. So okay. uh, first, I just want to say that I loved Jose's interview. I hadn't, um, you know, heard him talk before. I obviously have seen his poems in Rattle, but um, yeah, really enjoyed that. And I think he said the phrase "everything is interesting" at some point, and that's what made me think of this poem. And I was like, "Oh, okay, I'll read that." He did. Yeah, yeah. That's for yeah, yeah. He's a great. Guy. He's one of those poets. I just, I don't know. There's so many poets out there who who deserve uh, more attention than I think they get. And uh, so hopefully with a book out now, Tony will get the attention that he his work deserves. It's really good stuff just consistently. And also just a really interesting person. I mean, yeah. also mm-hmm. um, loved the Alaska shout out. That's cool <laughs> <laughs> that he was there. Um, and uh, this poem, I think I wrote while just on a walk somewhere. And so it makes me think of Alaska. Um, and there's also... A phrase in there, but I'll I'll get to that in a second. So I'll just read it. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and this is from uh, Interstitials, my last book of poetry. Everything is interesting. Everything is interesting. Watching a bird gliding in flight, listening to a kid cry and echo itself, not knowing if it's animal or human. Smelling diesel in the brisk autumn air, biting at your cheeks that redden in the waning sun rising wind. These are the signs of the living, the created in creation, interested in everything, separate but equal in the most joyous way, a part of it all. Everything is Interesting by Caitlin M.S. Buxbaum. 
Yeah. And I wanted to highlight that separate but equal because I it was it was interesting to me because uh, Tony talked a lot about um, reclaiming words and things like that. And I think that phrase is maybe um, calls things to mind Mm -hmm. that are uncomfortable. And I think and of course, I didn't intend that exactly. But that's kind of what I was feeling at the time. Like this is, I'm using this phrase and I'm feeling like finally it's for a good reason, uh-huh. um, yeah, not for yeah. something historically. So I don't know if, if, if people, how people feel about that, but that's what I was thinking. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that comes through for sure. Um, and then you sent a link to, to press pause press. Yeah. Um, so that's, um, the first time I've been published by them. Um, They've got a long turnaround uh, once they send out acceptances because I think this was accepted in like March and it came out in November. Um, but it's a really cool little press. Um, they do online and in print and they don't have social media accounts because their goal is to kind of stay away from that and be more um, in reality <laughs> than <laughs> cyberspace, I guess, which is yeah. kind of ironic because I found them online and I mentioned that in my submission. It's like, Hey, I realize that this is kind of weird, but also <laughs> I have a hard, it's hard for me <laughs> in Alaska to connect with people. So yeah, I saw uh, that. And I, I like the tagline. We, we just looked at the website. It was, uh, it's noisy out there, which uh, it really is noisy out there on the, on the internet. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so the poems that I submitted here are kind of, uh, social media e but i was just going to read the first one um, the american sentence sure chilly evenings darken with your scrolling scrolling what are you looking for Uh, that's a great american sentence and a a great thank you yeah yeah um and that form uh is for people who don't know the american sentence it's 17 syllables one single sentence which was the um the uh um alan ginsburg um, sort of Americanization of a haiku is his idea of it. Yeah, that's a really good one. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks. And I want to uh, encourage people to read the, there's two other poems in that, but I won't read them. I'll let other people navigate there. Um, and it's funny because there's a movie called Don't Look Up that just uh-huh. came out on Netflix on Christmas Eve. And my second poem in there is called Look Up. <laughs> um, <laughs> and maybe if people have seen the movie or watched the movie and then read this, they'll be like, oh, hmm, interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Especially because well, I wrote this a long time before that, but. <laughs> Yeah, well, everyone have to check that out. Um, Thanks so much, Caitlin. Yeah. Cool. Bye. Bye. That was Caitlin Buxbaum with two poems, and you can find the the other ones here at Press Pause Press, press, presspausepress.org. Okay, so let's go to another caller, and let's go to uh, let's go to Philip Stern. Hello. Hey, Philip. How are you doing today? Good. Let me mute you. Yeah. No problem. Here we go. Okay, here we go. Yeah, so it looks like you have a solstice poem for us today. I do. Uh, it's um, taking off from it, actually. But um, <clears throat> my uh, son is uh, coming in from Wisconsin. Oh. He's part of his family this week. And so that was on my mind. And um, in the poem, <clears throat> actually... In, in the, when he was born, uh, many doctors did not allow, you know, didn't permit husbands in the delivery room. Mm-hmm. So that explains part of the poem. And I never got to see my daughter being born. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, um, 
I plan to surprise him, I think, with this poem when oh, he comes great. in on Wednesday. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm glad he can come visit and, and you can share this with him. Go ahead. Whenever you're ready, I have it. Okay. <clears throat> the shortest day. You were quite a surprise. You came two weeks early, and the doctor had said you would be a sister. A birth I was not permitted to see. So when you emerged, there I was shouting, it's a boy, it's a boy, on the shortest day of my life. We had slept late. We were in the supermarket in the afternoon when your mother said, get me to the hospital now. No time for an epidural. You only took an hour to arrive, pink and squawking, complaining, I suppose, about the cold air. Who could blame you? You've breathed much cold and warm air since. You're 44 now. I stayed five hours while your mother slept. She did the hard work, but I was exhausted. I drove to the store to exchange the pink sheets and blanket. Not anything I could do about the pink walls. I fell asleep at eight. You and I have seen many beautiful, many long days since, but I will never forget your arrival on that shortest day, my winter solstice in June. Oh, that was great. Philip's an excellent poem. Uh, that was the shortest day. And, uh, and just great, great bring that memory to life. And, and of course, you know, parents all thinking about their own memories too, I'm sure, as, they, as you read that poem, because that's what was coming back to me when our two kids were born. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Philip. Thank you for allowing me to do it. By the way, great, great discussion today. I loved it. Yeah, great. Well, I'm so glad you could listen and join us. It's, it's always such fun. Yeah. Yes, thanks. Take care, and have a good visit with your family, too. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. That's Philip Stern with The Shortest Day. Uh, next up, let's go to, um, let's go to Julian Matthews, because he just called in. And um, I'm not sure if he's up late or it's it's a tough time for him now, I think. I'm not sure what time it is there um, in Indonesia. Hey, Julian, it's great to see you. How are you doing today? Hi, Tim. Good to see you, too. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you. And are you, what time is it there? It's 3.09 a.m. Yeah, I thought so. So are you up late or are you up early? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, up late yeah. just for the show. Oh, wow. Well, thanks. Sorry for the time isn't good. I mean, with the, the move to this morning. Uh, but I'm so glad you could still join sometimes anyway. It's great. Yeah, no worries. So so what uh, what is it? This is I am not a, an Xmas tree. Um, is there anything you want to say about it to, to start? Uh, just missing my two children who are not able to be with us for the second time. Mm-hmm. in two years yeah is it because of um just being safe or is it because of actual like travel restrictions uh a bit a bit a bit of both yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh, well go ahead whenever you're ready i have it up i'm not an xmas tree i'm not a christmas tree to be pulled out of storage once a year trussed up and encircled with blinking lights Decorated with baubles, ball ornaments, cheap glitter, and plastic pine cones. But some days, I do want to be your Christmas tree. On a platform or a stage, all lit, your glowing presence at my feet. I'm not a snowman with a carrot nose, hollows for eyes, twigs for hands. 
your snowball target eventually melting and forgotten. But some days I wish I could be rolled up in your warm hands, shaped anew, my poker smile peeking through your morning window, tipping my borrowed hat as you pass by. I'm not a Santa Claus, a parent disguised as your benefactor with a fake white beard, a pillow for a paunch, your corner bell clanger, your mall knee warmer with a dyed red suit and wind up repetitive ho ho ho. But some nights I dream of coming down your chimney, waking you up, introducing you to Dasher and Prancer, Cupid and Comet, Rudolph with his shiny snout. I'd wink, fulfill your wish, and take you on a sleigh ride across the twinkling night sky and make you laugh out loud, genuinely, like you used to. I'm not your unwrapped gift. I'm not your mistletoe or the kiss under it. I'm not your spiked eggnog. I'm not your fruitcake. I'm not your cookie. I'm not your seasonal representation of superficiality or passing fancy. I'm your emptied gift box. I'm your heartache of loss and regret. I'm your tired cliche of wants and needs. Your missing guests, the knock on the door that you long for, which never comes. You were my child in a manger, my living star, my wise princess, my little drummer boy. I'm still in your corner, pining for you, my hope evergreen, for your healing, for my healing. Tinsel in a teardrop, a lone light, always on for you to find your way home. A beautiful poem. Very, very touching. Thanks for sharing that, Julian. It's always great to, to hear you and, and get to share these poems. Um, just wonderful stuff. And I uh, hope you get to see your, your family soon. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, have a good, good night and get some rest. But as a Julian Matthews and, and Julian, we'll make sure to, um, if you call in on these earlier broadcasts, I'll make sure to do your first round like we try to do with Nivy because it's late, late there too. Uh, and uh, let's go to this first time caller, the 631 number and see who that is. Hello. Hey, this is Tim from Rattle and you are live on the air. Who am I talking to? Oh, Janet Hiller. Hey. Hi. Hey, yeah, how you doing? Great. Thank you so much. I love the broadcast. I love listening to um, uh, Alcantara. He was great. Yeah. Wonderful interview. Yeah, Wonderful I, interview. I, love, I love doing these shows, too. Um, so what do you want to share? <laughs> um, well, it was the poem that I sent for um, the news this week, which is about a incident that happened actually two years ago, but the perpetrator was finally finally agreed to a plea deal and uh, it was very upsetting to me and I immediately wanted to write about it because I find that I write when things move me and I usually when I'm upset about something and it's meaningful to me so I assume it's going to be meaningful to others um, so it's entitled another hate crime which is what it's about here let me let me uh, give me a second to pull this up um, poetry fun um, just one second There we go. Okay. Um, So go ahead whenever you're ready. I have it ready for you. Okay. Today, the judge and lawyers 
made a final deal. A felon, he may never own a firearm. Five months in the county jail, five years of probation, curfew, drug test, scrutiny, service to the community, therapy. The colors of the swastikas he painted were scrubbed from all the temple walls, where shades of hate reverberated, breaking open clots that formed from bleeding history. He offers an apology. He says, I'm sorry to his mom and the community. Another dandelion seed is catapulted by the breeze into a hazy sky and flashes in the shaky sun until it lands on moistened earth to bring forth roots and leaves. We'll use for tea that calms and clots the bleeding. History bandaged with the hope we swallow to forgive, but not forget. Yeah, excellent poem, Janet. Thanks so much for calling in and sharing that. Another hate crime. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Have a good day. You too. Yep, that was Janet H. Let me let me add uh, Janet to our call list. We know who that is next time. There we go. And next up, let's go to um, let's go to um, Richard Westheimer. Hello, Richard. How you doing today? I'm doing great, Tim. I'm. Uh... Oh, I'm so grateful that you do these every week. And it's so grateful for the people who gather and read and listen and, and make comments on YouTube. I know you probably have a hard time keeping up with all the back and forth on YouTube, but there's a lot I of... Do, but uh, I do, but I definitely love it. And and I feel if I, if I skipped a week, I've done that before. It just feels wrong. Like, I feel like I'm missing something. And then with two weeks going by between them, I forget how to do everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <at all. laughs> so I got I to gotta stay on... on, on, on uh, you know, the routine. Um, but so what do you want to share today, Richard? Uh, well, I'll, I'll start the time I'll do, I'll do the, one of my. Oh, I, I think we, uh, we lost your audio. Are you there? Let's see. I'm going to hang up and call you back. Cause we, we have your video still, but your audio is not on mute, but there's no sound. Hmm, that's never happened before. Let me hang up and call him back. Maybe, maybe something. Yeah, I'm not getting anything this time. Hmm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try uh, do a couple more callers and I'll try to get back to you, Dick. Um, hopefully we can. Um, let's see. Oh, Joey Stahl. We have yeah. I'm not, I don't know what was happening. We had the video. The video looked fine, but then the sound disappeared. Okay, let's call up Joy. Hello. Hey, Joy. How are you doing today? All right. So I think so you have a solstice poem for us. Is that the one you wanted to share? Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. And is there anything uh, you want to add or, or explain about it? Oh, just another last minute finishing. <laughs> yeah. yep, same this here. is very, very raw. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, go, go ahead whenever you're ready. I have it. All right. The longest night. Every planet has a winter solstice driven by a planet's tilt and orbit around its star. The instant the sphere's northern pole is aimed farthest away from the star. 
Many cultures celebrate that moment or celebrate to ignore the bad things that lurk in the darkness of the longest night. During the advent of the event, I dislike waking in darkness, needing morning light like caffeine. The shortest day of the year ticks away into the past. I celebrate the moment, longing for increased light that will not arrive for weeks. I try not to dwell in darkness or linger in the past that seems unavoidable on this night. I wake before dawn, although the clock and cats insist it is the time to be alert and commence the day, longing for the upcoming equinox when the planet rights itself for just a moment an equal day and night signal the arrival of spring. Excellent solstice poem. And that was The Longest Night by Joy Sell. Thanks so much, Joy. Thank you. Um, so, okay, Richard's back with a problem solved. Let's, let's get back to Richard. Hey, Richard, we got sound again. Yeah. We've got video. We're looking yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Do you have sound also? We do, yeah. yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah, so somehow my uh, auxiliary mic just started causing my system to go all crazy. So I quit, unplugged the mic, and here I am back again. Yeah, those auxiliary mics were trouble. We uh, we did the we used to do the interviews with um, handheld digital recorders that we would print, and I had lapel mics that would you know help the audio be better, so we could save the audio. The batteries run out, and they don't tell you <laughs> like there's no uh, warning, so- and so. Yeah, a couple that. times the the um, and so we or one time we stopped doing that. Like no more, no more external microphones. Yeah. Well, I, I I do appreciate you know the, I do appreciate that you keep taking these steps with technological things that can connect us. I know it complicates your life tremendously, but it, yeah. Well, I I like you know I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm I wonder if I'm at the age now where I'm starting to not want to because there are some um, you know, like some magazines are starting to do like NFT things. Um, and I, I don't know. I just don't feel like dealing with that yet. But, but this is just connecting with people. It's such a, just a fun thing to do. And I would have done it sooner if we had a better internet connection where I live. It took a while for us to have the bandwidth to do a show. But Yeah, when, uh, we, when we got uh, fiber out here in the country just before the pandemic. Uh-huh. Yay. I know. It's, it's amazing the difference it makes. Like we used to have... Um, you know, it was just through the phone lines and we have these old like 1950s phone lines and the squirrels would run along them and the power, you know, they just go out and it, it was just, it was a nightmare. And now it's just heaven <laughs> from working at home anyway. Um, so, so what did you want to share today, Richard? Um, so I'll, I'll read uh, my poem launch team, which was a poet's respond to um, uh, sort of reading about all the anxiety that the, um, scientists and team and people like me were feeling before yesterday's launch uh-huh. of the um, of the James Webb uh, telescope and are still feeling and will feel for the next 30 days until all of those instruments unfurl. And Yeah, it's amazing to think of like how much it's like a decade of people's lives, you know, and, and... it was ni- 1995. Wow, more first. than a de- <laughs> almost three decades. The basic yeah. design with the heat shield and the um, that was all ni- all from the nineties. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so this is a really interesting writing process as, as all these poets respond poems are where what I discovered in the, uh, writing of it was a complete surprise. Yeah. 
Oh, <laughs> that's what the poem it wants to be about. Um, so uh, that 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 that'll become apparent as I read it. So, launch team. The web telescope sits on its launch pad, much as I sat jittery at my boys' school graduation, fumbling with a physics award in my lap, waiting for some ignition sequence to begin. There I sat atop a rocket, clinging to that science prize like a talisman. It was evidence I belonged in the orbit of smart people. But I wound up failing at that, sat in college classes with folks who got vector calculus and Lagrangian mechanics while I got stoned and fell behind in my studies. I failed out of everything except playing late night card games and tripping out with folks who were as untethered as I was. Like a misfired satellite, I failed to deploy, failed to power up, failed to find my trajectory. I missed the message from mission control about what procedures to initiate, stuck being an underachiever with a physics prize. I read that Webb is supposed to become something special, but first she must blast off, pull five Gs, and I'm afraid that she too might come undone before unfolding, that the fire that's to lift her might consume her. She sits with so much expected of her soon-to-be-beautiful being, but unlike me, she'll not get a second chance to unfurl, to become a golden vessel for ancient starlight. I think her NASA parents must be infinitely anxious, worried for her future, and I fear tears well up from some part of me lost long ago in the exosphere. I think of my parents, forlorn as I floated cold in space, and what they said to each other when, after a hundred million seconds of crackle and static, that first clear signal returned from so far away. Yeah, that's excellent, Richard. And a great example of, um, you know, how to write a poem kind of in the process of that. If the poem, you know, if your poem gives you a door, walk through it. <laughs> that's right. Cause... Well, I've, I walked around in this room a long time before the door became apparent. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or, no pun intended, apparent. There we go. Yeah, excellent. Do you want to do the solstice poems too? Uh, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll uh, I had three of them. I'll, I'll pick. Um, I'll just read the last the last two solstice 2020 and solstice 2021 okay, yeah, uh, these and, are, and, and were they written um each on the solstice or are this all written uh, right on now? on or about uh-huh uh, I, I i i went back in my catalog and i just found solstice 2018 <laughs> 2019 poems titled as simply as that and so gotcha. i just yeah dragged them forward so i'll do 2020 and 2021 um Solstice 2020. Winter solstice dusk weeps red into the darkening sky, harbinger of the new year. Winter solstice dawn, a brighter morning than I expected. The old year leaves its dreams behind in a pile of bodies. Solstice 2021. I feel 
the wind shift, hear the limbs crack. Winter inhales a deep breath that pulls clouds rolling from the north. Oh, very good. I love that that pair of poems, a good contrast between the two. Thanks for sharing those too, Dick. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate you so much. Yeah, have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. That was a. Uh... Uh, Richard Westheimer with uh, Solstice 2020 and 2021, and then the uh, the poem Launch Team about the uh, the Webb satellite. Is that what's called the Webb? The James Webb? Is that what it is? Yeah, James Webb Space Telescope. That's the official title of that new satellite, which is going to be replacing Hubble with some amazing photographs. Let me make sure I didn't miss anybody who's waiting for me to call. I think we got everybody. Okay, so it's a pretty pretty long-running show today, but that's great. The other nice thing about doing them in the morning for me is I don't have to rush off anywhere most days. Some days I'm going to have to, but um, it makes it more likely that I don't. So um, let's share really quickly. Um, we have a couple of poems, uh, a couple of people asked to read. So let me read. This is Lauren Diaz, tip, The Tip Jar. This is a solstice poem. And uh, here we go. This is, uh, once again, Lauren Dia. See your name there. Lauren Dia with the tip jar. Sitting empty at my ankles, I cut the fingers from my glove. The yarns unwinding, so I bow and pluck and I strum. Stationed on the platform, playing, car- playing carols, where the trains bustle and bundle families together in a hustle with whispers of, Do you see Nana? Shoppers stream past like kings cross with their queens weary of this brigade of merry moments lost in the dark longing for the sun a lost little boy with cake crusted fingers lets go the balloon he was clutching catches something sharp bursts in perfect pitch his fit sounds an alarm i pick up my fiddle and fix to match his tune his his shrikes are sirens lyrics the wailing waltz is on my melody melts down his moans, and he toe-taps along. A grateful father surrenders a quarter quick to clank in my jar. When the wind whirls through, and I stop my foot in time, my toes uncurl and cross again against the cold I kick. The tip, the jar tips, the quarter slips, and in no time is nicked the tip jar sitting empty at my ankles." There is The Tip Jar by Lauren Dia. Thanks so much for sharing that, Lauren. Great poem. And um, let's see. So so she also mentions, too, this poem doesn't actually mention the solstice, but the scene I see is days before Christmas, and the days are short, and time for shopping and singing and picking up and greeting travelers is running thin. And while kids are excited, adults are stressed out and worn out by this constant joy. Hey, great, great poem. Thanks for sharing that, Lauren. And here's Carlton, uh, Carlton Johnson's poem. Let me see if I can open this. Yeah, there we go. Oh, I don't want to take the tour now. Okay. Um, so this is in a Google Docs, but here we go. Winter can be too much. And this is Carlton Johnson's poem. Here we go. Winter can be too much. Here is a clump of moss, grown solid with ice, frosted with death fingers, coiling around the green. The flames of life dwindle, but the embers are still. There, in the next place, there is so much more to living, to being in the breath of each moment. Do I have the right to declare my own illness? What measures me against others of the similarity afflicted? 
similarly neglected. It is a divorce we ask of ourselves, striving to take care of our own bodies, our own minds, own hearts. This is where the breaking, remodeling, remelding occurs, to go beyond the breaking point of life, the water flowing through forests, glens, veins, slowly freeze in tranquil winter. That is, a winter can be too much, by Carlton Johnson. And it, it sounds um, similar to, or, or sort of maybe inspired by the, the, the today's poem, which is interesting. There's some of the lines, the breaking point and things like that from today's poem, Breaking Point, which we um, talked to the Emily uh, Pickering at the top of the show. So thanks for sharing that, Carlton. And um, here is, uh, let's just keep this going. We got, we got some stuff to share. Let me, um, uh, here's, Carla Schwartz, who again, you know, the daytime is not as good for her, but here she is with um, an audio recording. Let's try to play this. And her poem is uh, Winter Solstice. So it's a prompt poem here. Winter Solstice. It's December. Waning light shines through the window. Each day, Another minute of daylight swallowed. This year, the shortest day is not the coldest day. The solstice occurs at a time on the clock, 10.30 a.m. this year. Yesterday, the air was so cold my fingers burned, burning with cold like burning with passion, only super cold. I felt the burn out on my ride. I had to shake my fingers to stem the pain. December is ending, winter beginning. Now we can count the days forward to lengthening light. Each day grabs another minute of life for itself. Each day grabs another minute of light for itself. This year I count backward through the shortening too. Yesterday, my dead mother turned 90. My father didn't live to notice. The week before, my live father turned dead. For days prior, death inhabited his live skeleton. For days prior, his live skeleton labored for breath. Breaths whistled through his stiffening lungs, his uvula punched by each intake in out in out a rattled march three weeks before my father sat up in his hospice bed a new arrival he looked like a plump squirrel a menu in one hand he eyed the meal before him ghosts visited my father in his dreams. Horrible stories he couldn't repeat. In one dream, he had to replace Placido Domingo. In another, a famous chemistry prof went postal. It was December. The waning light shined through the window. Each day, less and less food for my father. Each day, another minute of daylight swallowed. Excellent. That was Carla Schwartz with uh, 
uh, her poem uh, for this week, Winter Solstice. I'm so glad you could, hopefully it was loud enough for everybody to hear at, uh, at home. I have to read back. I, I cranked it up as loud as I could. I think it probably was okay, but that was Winter Solstice by Carla Schwartz. And it's great to have you here, Carla, even though you couldn't make it live um, at this time. It's, it's really cool to be able to um, share poems too, so I appreciate that. And of course, you can always find Carla at CB99 Videos. It's CB99 Videos on, on YouTube and, and whatnot. And then here we have a poem from Ted Guevara, a short one. Um, this is Solstice's Aim, another prompt poem. Here we go. This is Ted's, Ted's Solstice's Aim. Should a man reserve all his love for a woman, that one chance he keeps acute in a corner, safe from any doubt he happens to overthink, bears his cheeks, the wind becomes unruly, defiant in its song. His plan is as old as snow and just as drastic, a prolonged fall. The ungloved hands may be cold, yet veins shimmer under skin. We feel such burn, no winter remains constant, as spring also wants its turn. Great rhyme at the end there. I love that. His plan is as old as snow and just as drastic. Great line there. Thanks for uh, sharing that. It was Solstice's Aim by Ted Bernal Guevara. And, um... I think that's going to be it for... Let me do a random poem. I, I like doing a random poem as well. Let's see what happens when we click the random button. This is Intersection by Karen McCadden, who was... um Was Karen on the Rattlecast? I believe she was. Yes, she was. Right? I think so. <laughs> I think she was on like episode 60 or something. Um, and this is her poem, Intersection, from uh, Rattle number 32. So I'll, I'll just read this one, and then we'll, uh, we'll close out the show. This is Intersection. At the four-way stop, I wave you on, a kindness. You wave, no, no, you go. I wave, go. We keep on. You insist. Me. No, you, please. A bird shifts, a sigh. The penned horse tosses, pacing. I mouth, you go. There is a fleck on your windshield. I notice your hands. Rain falls. Your hands cup the wheel at ten and two, ten o'clock and two then float past my knee and only sometimes land. One hundred times on my back, they tame me. Cars line up. Birds lift. I nod my head into your chest. There is a trail of clothing. I walk to the plank door of your room. This takes hours and hours. This is a small cottage and there is sand on the floor and nothing on the walls, crows calling, dishes in the sink. Days go by. We are still making our way to the bed. This is our. This is an inventory. Black telephone, board games, frayed chairs, coffee tables spotted with the old moons of drinks, curtains pulled back on tiny hooks, single-pane glass, windows like the ones I used to sneak out of at night, lifting them as slow as the stepping. And when you talk into my neck, the words settle in the hammock of my collarbone, puddle there and spill, slide over my breasts, and I am slowly covered and rinsed. I do not close my eyes. Nothing hurts. The dust rises and swirls. Dogs bark. You turn your windshield wipers on intermittent. Your car rolls into the space I have built between us. I am up to my belly in a northern lake, cold. I am afraid now. When I get home, everyone will see. That is Karen McCadden's poem, um, Intersection. A great poem from rattle number 32. And uh, let's finish up with a Saiku for this week. 
And the Saiku um, is based on this story. Which, um, hang on one second, here we go. So this is from a popular news article. A lot of times I, I find a, um, you know, just literature from different scientific journals, but this is um, something in the popular news. This is from Newsweek reporting. Um, astronomers find 70 rogue exoplanets wandering the Milky Way in a breakthrough discovery. And what's fascinating about this is just that it seems like there should be planets everywhere. If you, if you know, considering the way stars form, um, there should be stars like Jupiter that don't acquire enough mass to ignite like stars do. But the problem is that you can't really see them because they, they're not emitting any light, right? So we have no idea how many there are. And um, this team of astronomers this week announced their findings, looking back through um, all the data over the last 30 years, finding these very faint planets that are still slightly warm from the process of of congealing. And... Um, and so they could find um, infrared signatures of these planets here. And so they found 70 of them, but there are probably billions just in the Milky Way. Uh, more, more rogue planets wandering lonely and cold in space than uh, stars in the galaxy uh, by an orders of magnitude. And I just think how, like imagine what it must be like to be on a planet like that or a, or a moon around a planet like that with no light from the sun, maybe some... Um, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of warmth from geomagnetic, or not geomagnetic, but but activity from the from the ground itself, and that's about it. But there could be life there too. So, um, anyway, this is the Saiku, inspired by that article. Holidays around a starless planet, one moon. Holidays around a starless planet, one moon. That is your Saiku for today, and that is your show today. It was an excellent uh, episode, I thought, with uh, Jose A. Alcantara with uh, The Bitten World as our main guest, and then a great poems and the, the open lines, and um, excellent poem to start off the show, too. So thanks, everybody, for joining me. It's always a pleasure. I just love doing these shows. I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss one for the world. Uh, next week's prompt is going to be another theme-based prompt. Um, more t- topical kind of um, theme. Write a poem about a moment of 2021 you'll never forget. So it's a look back at 2021. Is there a moment in 2021 you'll never forget? It's that time of year at the end of the year. And this is a kind of, um, like last week, I-, I noticed a lot of submissions about the solstice in uh, Poets Respond submissions this week. Another time you could sort of do, do double duty if you want and, and submit for Poets Respond and make it a prompt poem for this week too so that's the prompt write a poem about a moment of 2021 you'll never forget and next week's guest is going to be amanda newell um, amanda is the author as you probably know if you're a subscriber to rattle of this um this winter's chapbook i t- i will pass even to asheron and um, just a wonderful chapbook about a student of hers who um, um lost a leg in the war and and came back and and her experience with that and and, and the way that that we're all participating in this this warlike society and um i will pass even to asherah it's just a wonderful poem or a wonderful book uh, amanda newell is the poet she also has another book forthcoming um this will be up out next year i think so she'll probably be reading those poems as well but if you read the chat book and want to ask amanda any questions and, and have your question prepared and we'll talk to amanda newell on rattlecast number 125 sunday january 2nd and i have a typo there it should say january not january so i have to fix that 
But that is uh, Amanda Newell, Rattlecast 125, Sunday, January 2nd, the regular time, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great rest of your Sunday, and I'll talk to you later. Goodbye.